This is episode 202 of Alohomora for September 17th, 2016. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Lohamora. Currently and temporarily, MuggleNet.com's global reread of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. I'm Michael Harley. I'm Kristen Keys, and I'm Rosie Morris. And it is my pleasure to introduce today's guest, which is the lovely Andrea. Andrea, would you like to tell us a bit about yourself? Hello. Yeah. Um, well, my name is Andrea. I um, actually turned twenty-three on Tuesday. So this is a great oh, pre-birthday present. Um, oh, well, happy birthday. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> We're so glad we could give you such a great yeah, present. Yeah, it was, it was very yeah. well-timed. <laughs> um, we totally planned it. Though. Yeah, of course you did. You did a background <laughs> check, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I recently started studying literature at a university in the south of Sweden um, because I'm Swedish. Yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> Very cool. Oh, Rosie, you have you have a kindred spirit on with you today. I do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Europe. <laughs> Andrea, Europe and literature and all of these different things, which are also very good. Yeah. <laughs> Andrea, what is your Hogwarts house and what is your kind of uh, backstory with Harry Potter? Well, I'm a Hufflepuff. Yay! <gasps> Yay! Yay! <laughs> so many Hufflepuffs. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Kristen. <laughs> we like you anyway. That's good. Okay, then it counts. But you guys like everybody. So <laughs> just, we do, just kidding. True. Love you all. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, I'm a Hufflepuff. And, well, you know, I'm one of those people who grew up with Harry Potter. My sister got the first book for Christmas of 99. And we started reading it mm. as a family. Well, my dad didn't join, but me and my mom and my sister. And then we just kept going. It actually bugs me a bit that it's my sister who got the first book because then it's hers, you know? <laughs> and I became the bigger fan. So, you know, it would have been you, nice to have the first book. Do you know. have a shared collection with her? Or do you have your own collection now? I have my own collection. I actually don't have them in Swedish. Um, I was going to ask hmm. if you read them or or uh, experienced them in, in, in Swedish or if you just did it in English. Like no, the, other, the first ones yes. I was too young to read in, in English. So mm -hmm. the first ones were in Swedish. And the Swedish covers are amazing. Like, I'm super biased, but they're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the older I got, I started reading them in English. I think a lot of kids in Sweden actually, or I think in the world in general, um, we just tackled these massive books in English that we never would have done otherwise because we just could not wait. Um, mm. So I still, I don't think I've actually read Deathly Hallows in Swedish because oh. why would I? I'd already <laughs> read it so many times. So Only no. because... Uh, if you listened to our uh, episode listeners on the international covers, we were just like drooling over the Swedish cover of Deathly mm -hmm. Hallows. Everybody wants everybody wants it as like a print. I know, on their, right? on their wall. So good. Yes. You do have pretty pretty amazing um, covers. That's awesome, though, that you 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 did tackle 
it in another language because actually I've I've been so inspired by that um, from because I've had we've had multiple listeners on the show who have told us that um, mm-hmm. international listeners and um, I was so inspired that I actually when I was at Half Price Books a few months ago I saw a copy of um, uh, uh, Philosopher's Stone in Spanish and I picked it up because I was like you know this might be a great way for me to start learning Spanish because I know Sorcerer's Stone so well <laughs> yeah by I bet heart. You're <laughs> yeah right like. <laughs> If I pick it up in Spanish, that might actually be effective. So I'm going to give that Mm -hmm. a try. But that's really cool that you you did that with the. I've I've heard too that some international listeners feel that the the um, English it's 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 just kind of better to read the original English. Yeah, yeah, it is like the the Swedish translation. I'm not knocking it in any way. It's good, but it there's. (laughs) It comes to a point where you're like, well, it's supposed to be in English, especially with the like the riddles and all the yeah. rhymes, like, all like the little poor, yeah, just... poor translators. Mm. His name is Voldemort's name. He has like a oh. second middle name in Swedish because they couldn't get the whole like um, Latin thing <laughs> to work otherwise. <laughs> so they had to add another name, and it's really stupid. <laughs> but what's I did his full the... swedish name sorry what's his full swedish name his full swedish name i think is uh tom gus marvolo riddle <laughs> because what they did is when he does the whole anagram thing it doesn't go yeah. swedish it goes latin so oh. it says yeah. ego sum lord voldemort which is Latin for <laughs> I am Lord. Again, why would you translate it and then make it another language? That's not language, our language yeah. anyway. To be fair, I I have Philosopher's Stone in Latin, so <laughs> it's quite fun. So do I. Nice, nice. Yeah. We're so glad to have you here, Andrea. Thank you. For this particular episode, which um, I don't I don't know. I think we all read this one in English. Because uh, we are covering. Has it been translated anywhere? No, no. Not yet. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so we did all read it in English. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. We are in part two, and we are reading. It kind of confusingly. We we it's, it's Act Three, <laughs> but it's 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 Act One of Part Two, but it's Act Three of the whole. Depends on how you want to look at it. But the book calls it Act 3, so we'll just go ahead and call it Act 3. So make sure and read Part 2, Act 3, before listening to this particular episode. And we'd just like to take a moment to thank our episode sponsor from Patreon. It is Kat Tatara. I hope I'm pronouncing your surname right. Um, (laughs) Thank you so much for sponsoring us um, and for helping us continue our global reread and kind of examination and whatever else we're calling it these days um, of the Harry Potter books. <laughs> Thank you so Yay, much. Kat Yay, Katatara! Yay! <laughs> and you guys out there could become a sponsor for us for as little as $1 a month. Um, we'll continue to release lots of kind of little exclusive tidbits and all of those kind of things for sponsors over on Patreon, so please do go and check us out. Absolutely. And with that, thanks to Kat Tatara and her donation on patreon we can talk about 
uh, Cursed Child. And we'll start by actually kind of talking about it as a whole, because we do have uh, three individuals on here who have not yet gotten to share their feelings <laughs> um, with the wider world. Um, so we'll start with uh, Kristen and Rosie. Ladies, you've heard some pretty polarizing <laughs> opinions. You've had a lot of time to hear them, and you have both had very unique uh, experiences like with the show, we we have all had kind of a different experience with how we internalized Cursed Child. Um, <laughs> so, Kristen, how about you? What are your overall feelings? Overall feelings, I'm one of those people. I love it. Just I absolutely love it. Love it. Um, I love the feeling when I I was down in Aruba, but I made sure I downloaded it and sat in the hotel room while everybody else is <laughs> enjoying the sun, so I could finish <laughs> this book. Because um, I, I was one of the people I couldn't put it down. I just kept wanting to know more. It, it, it's weak in some parts. I can see that. Um, but overall, I loved it. Um, uh, and I can't wait. I'm going with Kat in December to see it. So mm. I'm excited to really go actually see it because I'm so excited when I when I read it that I can't wait to now actually see it. I'm, it makes me even more excited because I kind of was like, ah, I'm going to go see it. I'm not super, super excited. It's like cool. But now that I've read it, I absolutely cannot wait counting down the days. So Kristen was kind of one of those people, right? Who You get to do the the backwards version from what? Yes. Yeah, you, you read it and you get to go see it. And unusually, you read it on a secluded island. Yes. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Thank you, ebooks, because I like, legit even looked up bookstores in Aruba and there's like nothing. I was like, how am I going to read this? And I was like, oh, I'm bringing my iPad just so I can get the e version of this book and read it. <laughs> <laughs> and Rosie. Uh, mm-hmm. y- the reason that you you have a pretty good reason for not having been on uh, the first few yeah. episodes of Cursed Child. I've been avoiding the internet for about three months. <laughs> <laughs> because... But it was so worth it because yes. I finally went to go and see the play. I saw it um, at the very end of August. Um, was that really over two weeks ago now? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually haven't properly read the script yet. Um, I read Act 3 um, today ah. so that I could be on the show, <laughs> um, but I haven't read any of Part 1, and I haven't finished Part 2 yet, um, but I've obviously seen the whole thing. Um, so apologies to all of you listeners out there who are um, probably going to get annoyed with me because I'm going to keep talking about things as they are in production rather than as they are in the script, um, but if you can go and see the play, you have to go and see the play. Um, because just from reading Act Act Three, um, I can already see kind of so many little differences, um, so mm. many things that have either been changed or just really don't translate very well into the script. Um, mm-hmm. And just the show itself is so amazing, especially Part Two and especially this particular act. Um, so I, I would definitely recommend trying to see the play as much as possible. And I do think also that when we get this kind of second edition script that they're supposed to be doing, the one that's not the rehearsal script, mm. it will be a, a much better, more polished um, retelling of the story. Mm. So so don't judge this tale by the book. It is so much better than it would suggest. Oh, and Rosie, important question, fun question yeah. for you. Did okay. you get the quote-unquote... <laughs> canon cast <laughs> did you get the <laughs> cast or did, were there any cast replacements on the nights you went 
as far as I know, it was the canon cast. It was the the whole cast as it was supposed to be. I didn't see anyone saying that anyone had changed. Um, so yeah, all the trio, all of the kids were the the key actors, um, and they were amazing. Did you see it in this in the, on the same day, or did you see it over at a period of different? Um, I days? saw it on the same day. Um, okay. So it was a it was a Saturday showing. So I went um, for part one just after lunch, and then part two just after dinner. Um, so it made a really nice day of it, um, and. <laughs> Kind of some of the things that happen in Act Three, so what we're talking about today, um, mm-hmm. are made so much better by seeing it on the same day as Part One. Um, mm. Yeah, I'll, I'll explain yeah. that more when we get to it. Um, but yeah, I would I would recommend trying to see it on the same day if possible. But I, I do think like the um, the tension of the cliffhanger at the part at the end of Part One um, would hopefully build if you had to go and see it on another day. Um, but yeah, you, yeah, it's definitely not a play you can only see one half of. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to remember if um, if Allison saw it on the same day or if she saw part. I I want I I felt like she saw part two later, like You're right later. But I'm not I'm not quite sure on that. But we'll have to we'll have to get a reminder from her next time she's on the show about that. Yeah, because um, that's that would be interesting too if you both had a. Even though you both saw the play, if you both had drastically different, different experiences, experiences yeah. of how you saw That's it and how that affects ours your Ours is two different evenings. Oh, oh you'll have okay. To mm-hmm. Oh, jeez, crazy. So many different ways to internalize this yeah. um, material. <laughs> I and, really don't uh, want to spoil some of the things, though, so I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to have to censor myself a bit in this episode. Just yes, so you'll have to. Want. Yes, I know I know. Cat doesn't want to be spoiled by anything since she's going to go see it, and she doesn't yeah. want to be spoiled on certain visual elements. So. Okay, and, uh, I will keep them. And keep the Andrea. How, hashtag keep the secrets. Andrea, what are, you, what are your feelings on Cursed Child? Yeah, um, I have not seen the play, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, although, like, to be fair, I thought about it before this recording. I was like, well, at least it's easier for me to do it than for you guys. Yeah. Yes, like, that's I'm true. way closer. <laughs> Quite a bit. You so, could visit England for a weekend and easily see it. Yeah, like for me, yeah. it's actually possible to, if I can get my hands on one of the Friday 40, like I could actually do that and plan an impromptu mm. weekend to England. It's harder when you live in the States. Mm-hmm. Yes, just, yeah. a, just a tad. <laughs> just, just a smidge, as Newt's commander would, yeah. would say. But, yeah, it takes a lot of planning. Yeah. <laughs> no, my, my general thoughts are, you know, I, I went... And bought it at midnight, which was very nice. I read almost <laughs> all of it that first night. And I laughed out loud more times than I have done, like, ever reading anything. You know, usually <laughs> when you read something and it's funny, it's it's smirk funny. It's not, I'm actually going to laugh funny. But this was. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. good. But That's nice to hear. I would also say, like, I, I enjoy the subplot. A lot more than the actual plot. Um, mm. I like the relationships going on between Albus and Harry and Scorpius and Draco and Scorpius and Albus and, and all that. That's really interesting. I find that really fascinating. Yeah. The actual stuff that's driving the play forward? Well, you know, not so much. They're a bit weird. <laughs> I mean, I enjoy them, but... They seem a bit silly at times. <laughs> it well, feels that, like yeah. it's not made for people who 
listen to this show and like to nitpick <laughs> things. Yeah, yeah. yeah the well, storyline isn't quite as rich as we are used to with Harry Potter novel. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And it's okay. Sure. I mean, I, I'm okay with that. And I knew that going into it, that this is going to be a yeah. play. It's completely different. It's made to be enjoyed in a completely different way. So I'm fine with it. But I enjoy yeah. the subplot a lot mm-hmm. more. <laughs> That's a kind of a perfect lead in to the discussion, seeing as a pretty big majority of <laughs> part two, act three is subplot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, so we, we'll go ahead and jump in to our discussion of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, act part two, act three. So we start uh, in what I'm terming as the, the augury universe, which <laughs> I kind yes. of can't believe I'm saying that. That's, <laughs> that's silly. Um, so we're, but we're in the augury universe, and uh, it would seem that Voldemort has taken over. Uh, he has mm. a new regime. Now, of course, we have the benefit of knowing now that uh, this is not Voldemort, just Voldemort's regime. He's sharing it with somebody. Um, and there is a lot of emphasis on the imagery, interestingly, of the augury. And, of course, the revelation will come later that this is Delphi. We do, in fact, get that revelation in this particular act. Um, It's interesting. Watching the play, I never really got the augury as being a person in this scene. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. They they mention, like, the augury as almost like an institution. And I kind of saw it as maybe, um, like... Voldemort's version of the auras or like chief death eaters or like there was it seemed very kind of um high on the hierarchy but I never quite got it as a particular figure um so it's it's quite a subtle in its um foreshadowing in the fact that this will obviously become a, a very important character um but mm-hmm. it it nicely kind of sits there at the back of your mind of oh I know what that word is but I'm not quite sure what it means yet yeah that's exactly mm-hmm. what I thought as well when I first read it I, I thought the augury was going to be like some weird Voldemort version of the Wizengamot or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think you... we're not really used to kind of titles other than for kind of job roles and things, are we, in, in Harry Potter? Um, so no, yeah. Other than kind of Lord Voldemort and, I don't know, the Half-Blood, Half-Blood Prince self-titled mm-hmm. things. So there was no reason to suspect the augury is something other than an institution. Yeah. Well, and purely going off of, and you know the the augury thing, the the augury thing in itself is interesting because it, this is another one of those examples, kind of of just digging to the deepest depths of Harry Potter canon to get something, Be- <laughs> because auguries are not important whatsoever in <laughs> Harry Potter. Um, they are given a throwaway mention in Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Who knows? For all we know, one might appear. In Fantastic Beasts, the movie. Um, no confirmation on that. For more information on that, make sure to listen to Speak Beastie, <laughs> MuggleNet.com's Fantastic Beasts podcast. But um, auguries are kind of just... Uh, the funny thing, I guess, to me with the augury stuff in general is that auguries in uh, the augury in Fantastic Beasts is kind of a joke. Like, the, the whole... The setup and payoff within its very little small paragraph is that it's like this really solemn looking bird that wizards thought meant death when it cried, but it just means that rain's coming. 
Um, so it's and and that's pretty that's much it. what you'd experience in Britain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that bird will be crying a lot. A lot. Um, <laughs> um, but it was just—it's just kind of funny that something that really is used for such humor in the Harry Potter canon is used so seriously here um, to become akin to a swastika in its in its imagery the wings at the very yeah. least and what they symbolize um so i thought that was kind of for, for me it was an odd choice just because of the humorous nature of the augury um but i do see the symbolism though so if if the augury is supposed to be crying symbolizing a death we can kind of see delphi as the figure that's crying symbolizing the bringing on of the new dark regime and all that kind of thing um and it's mm-hmm. also kind of an opposite of Dumbledore still. Mm. Um, so yeah. if, if Dumbledore is the phoenix, the augury is kind of like an opposite of the phoenix. It, it foretells death rather than life. Um, so for Voldemort's um, child to... Um, spoil, <laughs> don't know. Uh, don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this or not. <laughs> you can say <laughs> um, that one. <laughs> for, for the child to be um, kind of symbolising that contrast to Dumbledore is is quite a nice image as well. Yeah, and I think also mm-hmm. what maybe they were going for this whole we need another magical creature that's connected with death. But we've already used yeah. Thestrals in another way. <laughs> we know them too well. Uh, and this was a creature that has been mentioned, even if it's throwaway and even if it's comedy. Um, it has been mentioned before and it's been linked to death. So it's like, we can shove this in and it makes sense. Yeah, it just I, sounds really impressive as a title. <laughs> the augury, yes. Well, and yeah, definitely they do, they do a fairly good job in the act of just covering up, like you ladies said, what the augury is. I think looking back on it retro- retroactively when you know that uh, Delphi is who they're referring to as the augury, I did find that fascinating in that I had to wonder how truly high up and influential Delphi would be within Voldemort's regime, if that was really a thing. Um, She seems to be very high up. So we have to remember that within this new universe, um, she would never have gone to the roles. Um, Mm -hmm. She would have been born and then stayed with Bella and Voldemort. Um, So she would have grown up as... Voldemort's daughter and therefore had all of the status that that would have given her um mm-hmm. so i think she would have been fairly high up if not kind of almost second in command even if we know that Voldemort is so kind of love stunted that he wouldn't be able to treat her like a daughter he would have been able to at least treat her as a powerful being who would be able to help him in his um never quenching kind of thirst for power Mm-hmm. I, I definitely agree with you on that one especially that blood bond that they have I think yeah. he would want her up there with him see and that's fascinating to me because I'm not purely convinced that Voldemort would treat his daughter so well um, like or that she would hold like the, to the point that he adopted her symbol as that that's the other okay so that makes it a little confusing too because if that's the timeline 
then why would she even have had the augury exactly. tattoo? Exactly, makes no sense because <laughs> that was from when she was with the Rowls. Yeah, well, where did she get that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's and that's something we talked about on the last episode too. The idea that Delphi, in all She's of the alternate. Yeah, in all the universes, she seems to defy the rules of the time turner.、Mm. Um, yeah, a bit. Because in、It's、the almost as if like the the prophecy strand is tying all of these worlds together through her, through her.、Um, hmm. But I think it, the augury itself must become like a self fulfilling prophecy.、Um, so she has the tattoo. Um, in the original timeline, whether or not she has it in the Voldemort's regime timeline, we don't know. It is a symbol, but it doesn't necessarily have to、That's、be、true. something like、yeah. wherever she got that original symbol from in、um, in the original timeline could also be the place where the augury symbol comes from in all the other timelines.、Um, it exists as its own creature,、um, and it associates itself with her and her storyline for a particular reason. Um, which would still be a reason in whatever universe. Yeah,、um, maybe she's just always drawn to auguries, no、yeah. matter what. And she seems to have、mm-hmm. she seems to have augury esque powers.、Mm. Um, she she literally kind of transforms into an augury in the play.、Um, so whether or not she's always had kind of metamorphosis like powers as well. Um, that or kind of a leaning towards auguries, maybe her Patronus is an augury or whatever. Because I don't know if she'd ever cast a Patronus.、Um, but yeah, there's there's some kind of symbolism that would link her to this creature in all of the worlds. Is that why she can also be so hilariously and easily taken down? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, Which we yeah. will get to. We, we will get to.、Um, but that, yeah, that's just. It was just an interesting idea to me that Voldemort would, because you know, as we'll see in Act in Act Four,、um, Harry kind of is forced to take on a Voldemort persona. Yeah. Um, to trick Delphi, and he treats Delphi with kind of a lot of derision. And actually, everybody seems to think he's doing pretty good、um, by kind of just brushing her off. Granted, it's in a timeline where Dumbledore, where Voldemort doesn't even envision having a child. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that just it just goes into so many things, I guess, about Voldemort's character because up and I think here too far until Cursed Child, we had pretty much confirmation from Rowling that Voldemort would not have a child. Yeah,、mm. that's the that's the most problematic thing I find about Delphi is that、yeah. the Voldemort I know from the books would never sire a child. Like、no. there would be no way he would ever <laughs> be able to connect to Bellatrix in any kind of way that would actually produce a child. Like, no. I mean, it's <laughs> so, bizarre know,、yeah, to it's... think about a child growing up with Voldemort and Bellatrix. You,、yeah. there's no way of even envisioning that. <laughs> I feel so bad for Adolphus. Like, <laughs> well, and he comes into some theories that maybe we'll touch on in Act Four.、Um, that's that have been kind of tossed around by the fandom, and I know Allison's really eager to kind of explain that one. But、um, you know, I think purely from what we the information we have from the play、um, isn't quite enough to support that theory because the play doesn't help. Up and out, say it. 
Um, and I think the thing to remember about Cursed Child is this is not like the Harry Potter books where Rowling is going to be like adding little tweets about the events mm. of Cursed Child to clarify things. No. And even if this she does... This isn't solely her story. She can't Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's it, She doesn't quite have... She kind of lost... Sadly, in a way, she kind of lost the rights to do that when she gave Tiffany and Thorne the rights to do this play. Yeah. Um, mm. This it, Changing a piece of theater in that way or adding to a piece of theater kind of extra canonically does not work the same way as adding to the books. No. Um, so that'll be very interesting to see how that plays out, especially because Rowling has t- kind of quote unquote live tweeted events from the wizarding world. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I, in, it was last year in 2015, correct? That she, uh, tweeted about, uh, 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 James's sorting at Hogwarts. Yeah. Um, yes. so, Kind of can't do that too much anymore with Cursed Child events. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Um, but yeah, that it just, I, I, I definitely am interested to see what the listeners think about Delphi and her status within a Voldemort uh, world. Um, because notwithstanding the fact that, as you said, Rosie, she's not really, she wouldn't ever really be needed by book, book Voldemort anyway. Um mm-hmm. Not even, you know, the, the the play kind of tries to subtly suggest that she's like a backup Horcrux, which yeah. she's not. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's not how that works. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't even think Voldemort would have... Voldemort was so sec- foolishly secure in his Horcrux plan, I think, is yeah. the clarification we get from I the novels. If Delphi was anyone's choice and decision, it would have been Bellatrix. Yes. I think she would have been the one that that said we need to do this to create the child to like help you in the future, something like that. Or she would have convinced Voldemort about a uh, prophecy or something. Maybe that's it. Maybe that prophecy existed before Voldemort's downfall, and therefore the child had to be made. That would be the only thing that I can think of that would result in Voldemort actually going through with that plan. Um, but I would always think it would be because of some outward influence mm-hmm. creating not his, it. it has yeah, to be not because him. of Bellatrix or because of some prophecy or because of something else that was creating it rather than his choice. Never his own volition, because that would never yeah, yeah happen. <laughs> um, but uh, kind of going to some more... And we'll, we'll touch on Delphi and the Augury stuff again, because it does come up a little later. But um, going to some more... Classic characters, my oh my, does this strange new timeline have a lot of familiar faces. Um, (laughs) One of the first to approach us is uh, Umbridge. And interestingly, she doesn't really... The the funny thing is I only have one point about her. And ladies, if you have anything more to say about her, please feel free to speak up on her. Because really, she doesn't do very much. Um, Yeah. Not. I was very underwhelmed by her. I was just like, oh, yeah. Like, I was expecting something. Oh my god, Umbridge is back, and I was like, the mm, reveal of her okay. at the end of um, Act Two was so like brilliant. Like, I I literally laughed out loud when I realized who it was that was coming on stage, and <laughs> like it was such a brilliant moment that oh my god, that's Umbridge. Um, yeah. That yeah. I, I wish I would have seen her a bit more in um, Act Three, but I think there is so much going on. Um, pacing is is kind of a real issue in these plays um, mm. that they couldn't really they were kind of paying lip service to these characters a bit too much 
Um, they they put Umbridge in there because of the the idea of it being quite funny that she would still be there and would be in power and people would recognize her so strongly. Um, but yeah, mm. she she doesn't do anything really? significant really. <laughs> yeah, to get that 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 you know that like you said, Rosie, that moment, and I can you know reading it, I could picture exactly what the reaction was that they wanted from her appearance. Yeah, um, and they did get it. Like it is, it's a brilliant reveal of, of mm-hmm. Umbridge. And it's, I guess it's, I guess that's another piece that people are maybe having a problem with with Cursed Child is, is kind of that idea of, you know, we know that putting these characters here will get a reaction from you. Yeah. Hmm. But maybe not. Nec- but beyond that, we didn't really know how to use them. Which, <laughs> you know. Uh, and Rosie, I'm so interested to see how you feel about this in particular, because as I mentioned on the last episode, obviously, I have been steeped in fan fiction quite extensively <laughs> through being on MuggleNet Audio Fictions. Mm-hmm. Um, but Rosie, you go even further back with that, because before <laughs> I, before you started Audio Fictions, you were kind of just the be-all, end-all of MuggleNet fan fiction. You were the one who was kind of... Uh, you know, had her hands and everything over there. And I, I'm, I'm curious because I'm, I'm kind of, I kind of see this as yet again, being another trope of Harry Potter fan fiction of, I'm going to put characters a, that people recognize. Yep. 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, firstly, I'm definitely not the be all and end all. <laughs> there are plenty of other people that work there and do amazing jobs more than I do. Um, <laughs> if you but... say so. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the, it's it's definitely one of those fanfiction things of everyone knows these characters, look what I can do with them, isn't it fun? Mm. Um, but, you know, I, I can see why she would be there. Like, the only reason why she was overthrown in the books was because of Harry and because of everything that happened and he managed to get rid of her and all that kind of thing. So I can see her being reinstated um, with the Voldemort regime. Um, but, you know, she was thrown out at the end of book five, so... Mm-hmm. Book five? Book five. Yes, book five. Book five. Mm-hmm. Doubting myself now, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> so there were kind of two years worth of books that would have still potentially happened that seemed to have been unwritten by her coming back to full power. It would have been nice to see maybe a continued fear of centaurs or something in that story. <laughs> um, just to show that they were actually kind of paying attention to what had happened in the books and not just throwing them back in there. Yeah. Um, but also, like, she had a proven record of being a Hogwarts teacher um, and, you know, a, a particularly nasty defence against the Dark Arts teacher. So if Voldemort was going to put anyone in there um, and wanted to remove the Carrows so that they could do his own bidding, then Umbridge would be a, a good choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really is kind of, as we were saying about plots and subplots, Umbridge, Umbridge being there is a subplot. She's she's not really there to move the plot on particularly much, um, other than of course um, the, the the confrontation with with Snape, Weasley, and Granger, as we'll get um, get to in a moment. Um, but yeah, it's slightly fanficy, but you're always going to get it to be fanficy if it's not actually J.K. Rowling writing the whole thing. Yeah, and I mean canonically, it does make sense. Yeah. Like you said, it, yeah. why wouldn't she? I I can so imagine her clawing her way back into Hogwarts. Yeah. Because she yeah, yeah, yeah. loved being in power there. 
she thrived on that. Like, there's no way she would be able to stay away from it. Yeah. And if we think of Voldemort as Tom Riddle, you know, and his, um, when he first opened the Chamber of Secrets to get rid of all of the mudbloods and all of that kind of thing, if you were going to pick anyone to carry on that regime at Hogwarts while you were away, <laughs> then you would do the one person who managed to do it whilst Albus Dumbledore was still in the picture. <laughs> and mm. that was Umbridge. Yeah. Yeah. So it definitely, yeah. And it definitely, I think, I, I, in a way, I almost don't think the the fandom would argue that she should be there. I guess it's it just, just been nice to see a bit more of her. Yeah. Yes. Well, yes, and as, yeah, as you mentioned, Rosie, she is um, just like Delphi. She's kind of hilariously and easily dispatched. Um, <laughs> on page 194, she is undone of, by, of all things, which got me laughing, DePulso. Um, <laughs> because this is the first time DePulso has been spoken in a written form of Harry Potter. DePulso is the, it would seem, is the banishing charm, which has been mentioned but never spoken by name. Um, it first appeared in, um, it first appeared spoken in the Prisoner of Azkaban video game. Um, and it, and it was a replacement for Flipendo. Um, so to kind of, and it, it, it made me, it was funny when I kind of made this connection in my head that Umbridge, like many of the bad guys in Cursed Child, kind of go down like video game bosses. Yeah. They're kind of introduced <laughs> and very easily dispatched of, and they're yeah. kind of just a minor annoyance to the to the characters. Um, and I think, you know, while that's all well and good and something that maybe audience members would be okay and familiar with, at the same time, you know, the, the weird part, I guess, and, you know, Rosie, it'll be interesting to kind of hear the perspective of somebody who saw it, but um, it just... It's funny that the, the the script at least describes, you know, both Delphi and Umbridge of, as being kind of full of dark magic. When, yeah. You know, they can fly, which was Voldemort's ultimate show of mm-hmm. dark magic. But mm-hmm. <laughs> they get taken down with really easy, easy offensive spells. I think the descriptions in the script are particularly lacking. Mm. Um Actually, seeing the effects on stage and the magic on stage is a lot more impressive. Um, so, if you like it, the pacing of the the spells, it's a literal shout of Depulso, and then an effect happens, and suddenly they are like repelled across the stage. Like it, it feels a lot more um, serious. Um, that I was going to say, they do have like major effects. Because I was going to, you know, maybe I don't know. Kristen and Andrea, if you felt the same way, but it kind of reads pretty funny on the page. Yeah. It's not a serious, like, you know, we're super scared of her. No. Mm-hmm. To, the picture in my head of, like, you know, short, fat little Umbridge being just <laughs> down by DePulso after being like, I'm the ultimate dark witch, and then suddenly, ah! It's pretty hilarious in my in my head. Yeah, Yeah. I mean that's what. (laughs) I mean, like you said, Rosie, of how you said it. Like, I'm that's how I like when I kept reading it. That's how I'm reading it. I'm pretending that it is on a stage or something. So I kind of got. I imagine what you said, Rosie. 
um, is that someone's just being like dragged across on stage or something yeah. like that. If you um, picture like some of the the movie jewels and how quickly those mm-hmm. um, the spell after spell after spell happens and how yeah. kind of impressive the the special effects are and things that are created on on those films. Mm-hmm. If you then like translate that to being in an audience looking at it on stage, the effects are as impressive as the CGI. Mm. And you can kind of sit there on stage and and wonder how have they done that? Because that is the kind of thing that you do in films when you have spent mm-hmm. about three weeks trying to do <laughs> 10 seconds worth of an effect and yeah. you're doing it live on stage in front of me. That's how? <laughs> like, it is, it, the magic on stage is the most impressive thing, I think, about First Child. And it just does not translate in the script. Um, yeah. But I do think as well, like, Umbridge's downfall... I barely even noticed it because of everything else that was going on around that scene. Um, because of the kind of emotional storyline storyline around Snape and around, you know, Weasley and Granger. Um, and I'm calling them Weasley and Granger because that's what their names are in this scene. <laughs> not Ron and Hermione, they are Weasley and Granger. Um, and yeah, it, it, there is, there's so much else going on that, to be honest, you know, Umbridge hasn't done anything. I didn't care that she was gone. It was just, okay, she's gone now. What about my characters? What are they doing? Um, mm. So that's that's one of the kind of moments where I'm like, I don't really mind too much if it wasn't particularly impressive. She wasn't a big bad um, and didn't really need to be taken down in any mm. more than just a, a small but rather impressive magical effect on <laughs> stage. And also, I think Michael, like one of the reasons why it reads as funny is what mm-hmm. Snape says directly after. Yeah. Yes. Where he's like, oh, yeah. she was always too... Snape was you know. so interesting. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, Karen. Yeah, but like that line where he sort of ridicules her for... I mean, essentially, it is a good line. I like it because it's one of those like, you know, bad guys. They always take themselves too seriously. Um, mm-hmm. So they do poke fun at that trope, which is quite funny. But it does make the yeah. scene less serious, at least on page. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and... Kristen, you raised a really interesting question um, that um, I think is worth asking both you and Andrea um, that we'll pause before we get into Snape because he's up next. (laughs) Um, And boy, there's a lot to say about him. Um, But uh, Kristen and Andrea, were you able, because of course for us, not only have none of us gotten to see the play yet, but we've also been very limited with what we have been able to catch a glimpse of because they Mm -hmm. have as rosie said hashtag kept the secrets very well (laughs) um so when you ladies are reading it are you picturing it are you able to picture it completely on a stage or does your mind accidentally go into movie territory do you accidentally have a 360 vision that would not be possible in a play atmosphere what what's happening for you when you're reading it Mine is definitely just the play. I completely went into it going as a play. So that's what, after reading this and seeing some of the things, like I haven't been spoiled about the time turn or anything and just reading the little bit of description, I cannot wait to see what it's actually going to be like on the Mm. stage. I still don't know how they did it. It's so cool. (laughs) Yeah, and I just hear it's awesome. Like, But when I was reading it, you know, and you read it multiple times, I was just like, oh, my God, I cannot wait. I cannot wait. I can't even... I'm picturing the stage and I'm trying to figure out how they're doing this and I've got a thing in my mind, but I feel like it's just going to be blown away because I was 
Allison told me, she's like, it is just the best. And I was like, okay, don't go any further. <laughs> don't want to be spoiled. I just want to see it. So I, I, I definitely went into it thinking of it as a play. And as I was reading it, I'm reading it as a play and everything like that. So I definitely, I think that's why, I don't know, I liked it so much is that mm. I could keep that mindset mm-hmm. possibly. Yeah, I think I, I, sometimes I'm seeing it as a play. And sometimes I definitely have 360 vision. I think especially <laughs> here, like these scenes, um, they, they for some reason, they so become like a movie for me, which does make it a bit weirder. Because now when, when Rosie was talking about Umbridge's, you know, big scene and, and all that, and I pictured it on stage, it did make a lot more sense and it <laughs> did look a lot more scary than in a movie version sort of so Mm -hmm. i think yeah that that is one of the problems i think mostly when they have kind of clear stage directions that's when i remember oh right it's a play um yeah and Mm -hmm. and some of it i try to when i when i've read it and i've started thinking oh that doesn't make any sense or this goes by way too fast that's when i pause and go wait a minute what would it look like with people just walking around and then it does Mm -hmm. make more sense just it sounds stupid but it like the characters in my mind are the actors from the movie but they're all on stage (laughs) that is how i always envisioned it because i haven't really seen a lot of stuff from the actual actors in the play so i'm taking the movie characters but they're on a stage so it's like i am seeing daniel radcliffe you know a little bit older doing this and this um and then I've made up my own version of what like Scorpius and uh, Albus really look like. That's so funny because Scorpius I very, I very clearly picture the actors that we did get to see. Like I don't see the movie actors, and I don't even see the movie actors for the characters we haven't seen. For those of us that mm. haven't seen the play, I mm. kind of just fill in some. I, I cast them in my head, I guess, and made up <laughs> some people. Um, because I, so the, to me, they're like even though the play occasionally references the movies, this is like so far removed from that for me. Yeah. Um, that I don't see the movies influence very much in the in mm-hmm. my vision of the stage direction at all. And I did get to see, you know, like I've been I bef- while I didn't spoil myself on the plot before I read it, I did try and watch as many videos as I could because I knew that the you know, the videos they were releasing, they were being very careful about the secrets they mm-hmm. revealed. Um, so I was okay with watching the videos. And I think from that, I got a fairly good sense of what the stage looked like, the actors, the general feel. Yeah. And um, it does help, I think. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think I only watched one video before going in. Um, and that was, um, there was something about them doing kind of one choreography on the stage. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and that was the only video that I watched. And it was, I think it was just kind of introducing the, the main trio and kind of showing them getting to grips with the world and that kind of thing. Um, and I think I kind of watched it to reassure myself that it was okay. That these <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm so glad I did that going in. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm still really glad that I'm, I'm having this experience this way around, having seen the play and then, and then reading the script. Mm. But what's interesting to me is that I've I've seen the play. I've I know what it looks like and what it was on the stage. And yet, in my memory now, I've got this kind of dual vision where I'm I know what this scene is, and I'm picturing the characters on the stage, and I can see exactly what happened. And yet, in my mind, I've got 
all of these events happening in the forest by the lake where Harry <laughs> and Sirius were fighting off the Dementors. Mm. Mm-hmm. From the film. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. That that image of Harry and Sirius on the ground and that lake and then the mentors all surrounding him, that is my image of the setting of this scene. Mm-hmm. And that's having already seen the play and, <laughs> and knowing what they did. So there must be some kind of recollection in that scenery and in, in what they chose that actually has tied it into into that image in my head. Because mm-hmm. it is is just so vividly that place yeah. um, in my brain that, you know, that there's no question. I've seen it on stage. Of course it was that place. But it, I mean, it doesn't. It, the staging doesn't look like the film. Yeah. Um, the staging is very much a stage, and it's it's got kind of some ideas of trees and things, but that's based on what the the general staging for the entire show was. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't actually change too much just to give it this kind of woodland feel. So there's something about the atmosphere created in that scene that has su- such a kind of heavy bond with the atmosphere of the scene in the book and the film that ties the whole thing together for me. Um, that I'm really glad that, you know, all of these different versions of, of Harry's universe can exist in my head at the same time and it still works. It's really nice. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you were just making me think, made me kind of realize that I, um, while I can see the stage pretty clearly in my head, the one thing that I do trip, that that's kind of my vice with this and how I picture things is um, a lot of people were saying, try reading it aloud, maybe that'll make you feel better. It hasn't, by the way. <laughs> oh, um, but it, it, the funny thing about that was I read them the the way that I read them when I read the original books. Um, I give them the I give everybody the same voices. Oh. But I real but I realized as like the biggest one was when I opened my mouth to do Hermione's voice, and I was like, "Nope, I've heard no speak, and that's not no. that that's not right at all." <laughs> so I, it's it's kind of funny how. I realize that, like, even though I can see them, the voices that are coming out of their mouths are the ones that I pictured for the novels. Um, so that's But still... I think your voices are very much teenage voices as well. So you have to age them a few years and, and see see how they would turn out. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I pretty successfully aged Ron and Harry. Not so much on Hermione, but I just, in my <laughs> head, she sounds the same for the rest of her life. So. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, and we'll get to the trio soon enough. They have their moments here. Um, mm-hmm. But as we mentioned before, uh, who should appear and have quite the role in this timeline or universe, depending on how you want to look at it, but Severus Snape. Uh, oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> this was my only worry, actually sat in that audience. I got to the stage... Um, at, at the end of Act 2 or sometime in the beginning of Act one, uh, Act 3 um, where I kind of went hang on a second, if they brought back, um, brought back Umbridge who else could they, brought, who else could they bring <laughs> back and then I was like but Snape is Alan Rickman, you can't Yeah. Mm. I, I, was, I was so mm-hmm. worried about how they were going to do Snape if they did bring him back um, that I, I literally couldn't picture anyone else than Alan Rickman and I kind of forgot that he would have aged and mm-hmm. that the character would be different than it would have been in that moment with Alan Rickman on the films. Um, mm-hmm. So when he actually did kind of appear, it it was reassuring because he is depicted as such an older character in the play um, that he is not the same Snape. And you can't see it as the same Snape that was in the books. He is Snape 20 years older where he has been wizened by 
Voldemort's regime and all of that kind of thing. So it was it was enough of a different character for me that it was comfortable and reassuring that they hadn't tried to do an Alan Rickman impression or something like that. Was, oh, that would have been horrible. I know. <laughs> it's not. It's really, really good. <laughs> well, and that's, I think, the probably one of the biggest problems about Snape on the page is yeah. that, of course, Rosie, the description you just gave is not something that we get. No. no. Yeah, when you said it, and... I was like, yeah, right, he's older. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Because... It's a really different depiction of him. It's, yeah, I reading it in the script, like, you... You have no idea how much it is not the same character. Um, mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Apart well, from you know the, some of the things that he says and the way he acts, and it, it doesn't seem like it's the same character. And he is actually used as quite like relief later on as well. It's, <laughs> it's, it's strange for Snape's character mm-hmm. to be the one that's making jokes. Well, and you know that I think that's what makes it so fascinating because it's. I think Rosie and I will uh, pretty pretty uh, prominently remember. Uh, not so long ago, the as we called it, the Great Snape debate on Olofomora, <laughs> that we we ended up having to do a whole second full episode on video <laughs> chat with you listeners because there was so much to talk about and so much to be said. And uh, this didn't do anything to help that, in my opinion. No, definitely <laughs> because, not. <laughs> because um, I think, you know, I have a lot of points here, but the probably the biggest one that I feel summarizes what the plays sets out to do with Snape is his last appearance on page 195, where the description uh, writes him as standing there as quote unquote, looking every inch a hero. Mm-hmm. And of course, Snape's following demise, which <laughs> is nothing but overly poetic. Um, and my God, if it didn't come straight out of a very Potter musical, um, in, yeah. its, in its ambition. There's quite a lot of very Potter musical in this play. <laughs> well, and it, that particular moment, because I actually went and watched a few clips of the Potter musical because I haven't watched it in a while. And this particular yeah. line gave me the the urge to go watch some of it because the thing that I thought of with this moment in particular, because, of course, to give listeners a reminder, the way that Snape goes out in the play is that he... Um, is he's get, he gets his soul sucked up by Dementors, but there's that moment where the Doe Patronus looks back at him and he gets another moment of looking Gosh, into Lily's sure eyes, so to speak, um, before he dies. And um, the um, it, it, it made me think of that scene in the Harry Potter sequel where Snape happens to be standing by the mirror of Erised and Lily's in there. Um, He's so sad. And it's, but, it, and it, and it is like the, the audience, like to me, I was like, the, I wanted to hear the audience reaction in the Potter sequel because I wanted to remind myself of it because, and it was exactly what I remembered. It's a bunch, yeah. mostly girls, <laughs> but everybody going, oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like the most drawn out awe you've ever heard. And I kind of felt like while that may not be exactly the reaction that happened at Cursed Child I kind of felt like that was definitely the same feeling that was being sought after with Snape as a whole in his appearance um, yeah with with his use in the play and you know ladies go please feel free to go further into your feelings about how Snape <laughs> is is utilized in this play what you see that's kind of what I'm seeing 
I think um, kind of going on from our great Snape debate and and the the duality in the um, the fandom's opinion of Snape. Mm-hmm. There was so many comments in in just the lines that are like, oh, you have to trust me, Snape, because I know that you were in love with Lily and because um, Harry really trusted you and because you were the name of his child who was my best friend and therefore you should trust me, Snape. That kind of thing. <laughs> the, the lines were really kind of clunky yeah. um, and, and really kind of rubbed at home as, oh, look, Snape's the good guy. Um, mm-hmm. That I really think fans would hate that. Um, but... <laughs> the portrayal of Snape himself redeemed it. Um, mm. And the, um, the, the interaction between Snape and Granger is the only thing that really made me think, okay, Hermione trusts him. Therefore, mm. he has been a good guy in this timeline. Um, for, for, her, for, you know, Granger to have those moments of, I'm sorry for what this means to you, um, and um, have these kind of little looks across each other. She and Snape are on a level when we mm. see them together. And it's so interesting to see that dynamic from, you know, he literally insults her in this scene and yet she still respects him. So he must have done something so amazing um, for her to to trust him in this way um, that we just don't get to see that story. And that's what really intrigues me about Snape in this um, in the play. I guess my part of my challenge with Snape and his appearance is um, summarized by his line on page 193 when he's kind of sending Scorpius off away to finish the task um, of changing time again. And he says, I couldn't save Harry for Lily, so now I, I'm not going to read it like Snape. Because <laughs> I just can't. I couldn't save Harry for Lily... So now I give my allegiance to the cause she believed in. And it's possible that along the way, I started believing in it myself. And I feel like there's, based on how we've analyzed Snape through the seven novels, and of course it's hard to, it's really hard to, t- to, to analyze this because it is an alternate universe. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I think there's a lot of people within the fandom who would question whether Snape would have carried his task and his mission beyond Harry dying. Um, And the idea that he would give himself over to the cause that Lily was believed in when he made it pretty clear in the, in, in it was very, it was made fairly clear in Hallows that this wasn't for that. Yeah. Yeah. It does feel a bit like they're trying um, as you pointed out earlier, that they're trying very hard to drive home that Snape loved Lily. Snape loved her <laughs> so much. And, I mean, this has been a discussion for some time whether this was actually love. And, I mean, the play seems to go off saying that, yeah, it was love, because it doesn't make any sense for Snape to have done this otherwise. Like, there's no reason mm-hmm. why he would hold on for... 19 plus years um, <laughs> like it, that would be so weird if it wasn't actually real love which you know some some fans are going to disagree with that um mm-hmm. but that's well, the only way to read it i think even with the you know argument of love or not love because i i'm still i'm i'm very much on the side that yes you did love lily 
But with that said, the way that, you know, for seven years he treated her child, um, <laughs> and for, and other, and, and other children, yeah. and, yeah. uh, just made very like and he made very clear to lily within their years that his need to belong ended up overriding his his willingness to give things up for her and And i think that's partly what the motivation is like if it was always this need to belong and he didn't belong with lily and that didn't work out and he didn't belong with Dumbledore, really, because he always had to play the double agent. Mm-hmm. And now Dumbledore's dead and Harry's dead. So all of that storyline is gone. And he's mm-hmm. left behind. And he's left behind in a world where he was the one that really created it in so far as the whole prophecy thing. He's the one mm. that really made this world. And he still doesn't belong. And I think that would be the main change in his character the fact that he now you know he's he's seen both sides of the story he's tried to achieve the good world it didn't work he tried what well, he's tried to live in this bad world and he still doesn't quite feel like he deserves or belongs to be there so i'm really interested like i'm so intrigued by this different snape um mm-hmm. and and what has brought him to this point because See- it, he really is a very different character and Rosie, what you what those those few things you just said about Snape, kind of the necessity that Snape would have to have realized that he made that world. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't it have been interesting if he said that oh, <laughs> somewhere yeah. in the play? <laughs> like I so think so much, so many lines of "You loved Lily" could have been removed, <laughs> replaced by <laughs> "Why the hell have I done this?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like that's that's what's. And as you said, Rosie, that the earlier, that's what's the issue here. It's amazing that that's still an issue, despite the fact that it really does speak to the enormity of Harry Potter, that they split it into two parts yeah. with two acts, and yeah. there's still not time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's even a time turner, and there's still not time. <laughs> like, there's still no time. And, and it, I feel like, but I do feel like if things had maybe been a little more revised that there still could have been room for that yeah that yeah. exploration of from Snape. I missed the discussion of the the first section of the play obviously but um mm-hmm. I the, one of the one of the main things that I wish had been different about the whole Kershard experience mm-hmm. is that I wish they had started on Albus's third year Mm. I'm not interested in seeing 19 years later again. I'm not interested in seeing a montage of the first three years played in fa- in you know fast motion so that we can mm-hmm. get to the point of, oh, we used to be brilliant father and son and now we're th- we can't stand each other. Like that just, it didn't feel right to me. If they had started in year three and we'd got this mystery of, hang on a second, this is Harry's son. What's gone wrong? Mm-hmm. He gave him this name that meant so much to him supposedly but somehow he can't connect to him. Like, I I would have been so much more engaged with that story and the mystery and trying to work it out than having to kind of see it played. Um, and yeah, there are there are little, lots of little tweaks like that where they could have changed how they told that part of the story to refine it and to make it quicker and to make it more engaging to an audience rather than just, here is what I'm telling you, go. Um, yeah, 
No, absolutely. This I is think, one of them, I think. I think that's definitely a a big issue with the play because that yeah. stuff doesn't really end up serving things as much as it just kind of feels shorthanded and lazy. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. but yeah. One thing I am very glad that they repeated is the silver dough because the effect on stage, <laughs> I, I, I cried. It was no, beautiful. I, I think that's one. <laughs> of, and, you know, Andre and Kristen, if you agree, please say. But, you know, I, I there are moments when I read some of the things that they were like, yeah, we're totally going to do this on stage that I'm just my my jaw does drop. And I'm like, how? Yeah. How yeah. did you yeah. do this? Definitely. Um, I mean, it's so like, amazing. Why? What? How? Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't say then. How much can I say is the issue. I don't want to spoil it. Don't say it. <laughs> All I'm going to say is that it is incredibly beautiful and it is okay. so much more tangible than the films. Mm. Oh. And that's uh, all I'm going to okay. say. Yes. I could see that. Yeah, that's. <laughs> and it's, you know, like I said, it's, it's, it is a. It, I guess, it, like, the only reason I have reservations about it is more what it what it's trying to do for Snape mm. within the yeah. fandom that like as a, but as a piece of, you know, theatrical imagery, um, that connects to Harry Potter, I'm all about yeah. it. Like, I think it's a great moment. Um, mm-hmm. so and the fact that it protects Scorpius is just, yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I guess what yeah. I was saying too, about Snape having that line about, you know, perhaps reflecting on what he's done to make things the way they were, I feel that would have really interestingly connected with what Scorpius and Albus have been doing this whole play. Yeah. And I feel like mm-hmm. that's where part of the problem lies too with Cursed Child is that Scorpius and Albus run into so many characters that are kind of just there because then yeah. like you mm-hmm. said, Rosie are lip service mm-hmm. to the fans. Whereas the characters do have things to teach our new characters, but they're not really imparting the lessons that I guess you would expect. Um, in yeah. a lot of ways, no, there's opportunity it, for those lessons. Exactly, and it, and it's again, it's been so long for Snape. We we see him now, and we're like, oh, it's so weird that he would um, have started believing in Lily's cause. But it's been so many years, like two decades. That's a long time for someone to come around and and change their mind and Mm -hmm. um, experience new things and like you said Rosie become lonely and there's definitely a very real possibility of him seeing what went wrong because it's so much time and that also is why it's so hard for the play to relate everything because it would you wouldn't be able to do that with a like a throwaway line um, yeah. it's almost better to not touch it at all because it's like if you start yeah. to unravel those 19 years that's never gonna you know you don't have time for that <laughs> <laughs> I started to see parallels between this older Snape and both McGonagall and Dumbledore if you if you know their backstories on Pottermore the whole idea of they they lost loves early on and then never found another one and they lived very long lives and all of these kind of things. Mm-hmm. Snape in in Cursed Child, when we see him here, has a very similar um, kind of um, melancholy as and, and kind of solemnity as um, McGonagall does in Harry's years at Hogwarts. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a similar kind of age and stature, I think, that 
they've they've got these wizened years um and they've seen so many kids come through um that they they've started to see life in a very different way and and snape seems to be on the cusp of that here um where he's he really is changing and and starting to consider you know young lives is worth protecting rather than something to be jealous of which would make sense as far as scorpius very easily being like Harry named his son after you, and Snape, rather than being like, that's disgusting, <laughs> cry like a single manly tear and be like, I'm touched, is kind of the way that it ends up going in the script. It's the idea that yeah. he's actually made a difference in someone's life, and I don't yes. think Snape's had a lot of that in his life. Yeah. Which is mm-hmm. sad. But, but uh, he also did do some horrible things. He yeah. did it to himself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> What a butt. Anyway. (laughs) And we, and with that, we move on to the guy that's been kind of actually uh, the other person who's to blame for a lot of this, bless his heart. But not really, because he is such a cinnamon roll. Here comes Scorpius. Here comes Scorpius Malfoy. Lordy. Um, So he. uh, Before we do anything else, can you guys tell me is Scorpius as loved from the script as he is from the show? Because obviously, I have I have stayed away from the internet. I literally know nothing about fandom reaction to any of this. Oh, he is. But everybody loves him. Yeah, good. He's he's the new. So worth adoring. (laughs) I'm the only Mm -hmm. person I think on like the planet Earth who doesn't much care for him. Like literally. Oh, it's, oh and it's Michael, not... if you actually saw the play, you would you no, would I know want to I take would. him home. <laughs> oh, I know I'd like him. He's a lot more sensitive in the actual show though. I don't think you I don't think the anxiety plays well in the script. Um there are there's a a definite fragility to him, um, which then mixes with the Hermione book knowledge kind of nerdiness. Um that I I see him as a very realistic character. I see him in some of the students that I teach actually. Um, so, oh yeah, no, I don't. Yeah, the portrayal it's, is, is a lot more real on the stage. I think it's not that I don't, and I don't like. It's not that I don't even find him relatable in a lot of ways. I do like, but I, I guess the the he's and too relatable. He's he, he's. It's not <laughs> only that. It's just that, and that's why I said borderline Garrett's too, because he's not yeah. perfect. But almost every issue related to Scorpius is not his fault. Mm. It's everyone else's fault around him. Yeah. yeah. He's not really at fault for anything. He kind of is, like, at the end, he's like, I have anxiety. And I'm like, okay. I have mild anxiety, too. But that doesn't mean things aren't my fault. And he's just like... We are. Uh, like, <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know. Like, that's that's my hang-up with Scorpius. It's like, I, yeah. I really, I really want to like him, and I can see why he's been so, like, embraced immediately by fandom. Simultaneously, mm-hmm. I'm just like, hmm... You have I I have problems with you because he he just feels he he doesn't feel more or less pandering than other elements of the show, <laughs> um yeah. to me. But you know, bless bless his heart. I'll, I'll go along with you, Michael. Like he's definitely not my favorite character, and I don't know why people are so obsessed with him. When you see I, the actor's portrayal, okay. you will change your mind. <laughs> okay, yeah, I've just kind of been like, meh, he's there. Um, but I, I haven't had, I don't know, I really like Albus, so, but, um. See, I'm meh about yeah, Albus. I, I really don't care that much about <laughs> Albus. I, I feel that's everybody else, that's what I hear, and I'm like, God, I'm like the opposite on this whole, <laughs> story, on this whole play. 
you know, Al- Scorpius, he encounters quite a few people in his little timeline. He, uh, he has a brief run-in with Polly Chapman, who's pretty much, she's, most of the new characters who are Hogwarts students, everybody's like, who's Polly Chapman? But, <laughs> yeah, she, yeah, Polly Chapman, she's, she's crazy. Um, she Polly, duh. <laughs> you know, Polly. Um, but yeah, she, she's kind of, she's kind of there. Unfortunately, most of the Hogwarts students kind of serve this purpose to basically provide exposition and be like, this is what the new timeline is. Yeah. Um, she does it a little bit disturbingly because she's got blood on her shoes the whole time she's talking yeah. about that's, uh, blood ball. That's creepy. Uh, um, that's the regime, though. That's more, that's not her character. That's just the sign that she's in this dark Hogwarts. Yeah, absolutely. But I like how she says that when she goes, she goes, oh, Potter. Yeah. <laughs> like, Potter's a swear word now. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, the whole thing yeah. where she's, like, talking to him and asking him out. And it's just, it's so weird and bizarre. And she's so cocky. But it's amazing. Yep. Yes. Like, who talks like that? No one. <laughs> Polly Chapman does. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to think of her as like the mean girl. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She yeah. is. She's very much the the top of the pack mean girl who should be the one that is going out with the top of the pack jock, um, who apparently Scorpius <laughs> is in this other world, much to his t- terror. Um, but what's interesting about the Polly Chapman in the script is she is a lot more confident than Polly Chapman that I saw on the stage. Um, and the when she says, "Oh Potter, I've got." blood on my shoes line there was an element of fear it sounded like to me in her voice when I saw it on stage and like she Mm. kind of she bent over to rub it off and then kind of caught herself and went oh no I can't do that I can't get the blood off my shoes because it's a sign of me being a death eater and I should be proud that I've got blood on my shoes and that kind of thing um so there was a, a tension in her character on stage that just isn't in the book at all um and I don't know if that was a particular portrayal that has changed since the script was written or if it was something that is coming out of. Well, and that that comes, that comes with something we mentioned on the previous episode, which is that the one thing that this script is really missing and the one thing that future productions will be affected by, and there's been debate on this, um, but uh, is direction and, and combined with actor choices, because I think we even saw in our, um, and, you know, listeners, make sure to listen to our uh, recap discussion uh, with your comments that we've incorporated. But there were comments, um, actually, on the last episode about listeners saying, I can totally see that line being interpreted ten different ways. Mm-hmm. Or acted upon ten different ways. And and uh, uh, when we had Steve Vanderark on last week from the Lexicon, he was saying how he's done a lot of extensive theater, and I personally have a little bit of theater experience myself, and there is that that kind of a little bit of carte blanche with directors to kind of and actors to just say, well, let's try it this way and see what happens. What does mm-hmm. this bring out in the character? So definitely that idea that maybe Polly Chapman has a little bit of fear for what that means to wipe blood off of her shoes was not isn't in the script not only because it was a director's choice for this production but because it may not be something they do in another production or that the actress yeah, may totally. not choose to do in a and future it's very production. much a rehearsal script like it, yes it, it, yeah. it is bare bones script mm-hmm. but that is very interesting if if she is a bit afraid because as you see it this other Voldemort regime world it's very very clear-cut everyone's very you know yeah. she in the script, as I read it, she was so on board and 
everyone is so on board and no one's grey area <laughs> and it's, you know, all fine and dandy, muggles being killed left, right and centre. You don't have the little bits of dances being described either. Like the way the Death Eaters and, and the people in this regime move is so incredibly synchronised. Mm. Like everyone is a unit. And for this moment of breaking from that unit to appear was so intriguing. Yeah, that, I mean, really cool. that does give it a bit more depth, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah, because I think there's a lot of extension that the it's it's so different within the three mediums of book, film, and te- and 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 theater, where the book, you know, Rowling has the ability to kind of very subtly sneak in these parallels to World War II and the Nazi era, you know, imagery. Mm-hmm. The the movie beat you over the head with it. Um, <laughs> they just kind of fully went in that direction. And then and the play does it with interpretive dance. Yes, yeah, exactly. So you know how how interesting those three different ways that we can kind of frame this this same idea of, of yeah. Voldemort's takeover in three different drastically different ways. Yeah. Um, and speaking of Voldemort's takeover, there's somebody pretty prominent in that takeover. Uh, Draco Malfoy gets mm-hmm. what is, in my opinion, a very bizarre scene in this off this page. It must make a lot more sense on the stage. Yeah. Um, he, <laughs> the one thing, the, the his scene kind of has a, commits one of my favorite sins about this play, <laughs> which is there's this point where he slams Scorpius on the desk and Scorpius proceeds to do what he does best and he rattles off a bunch of information from Pottermore. <laughs> 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 so, and... Rosie, I had mentioned on the previous episode that the, my issue with that is that that's a very that's another common trope of Harry Potter fan fiction to perhaps mm. dig as far as you can in deeply into canon to further legitimize your story within yeah. canon. And this isn't the only that by by no means is this the only. Um, moment where that happens and in a way this moment at least does it in somewhat of a way that is relevant um because it does he kind of just goes on about the whole Malfoy backstory and Astoria um <laughs> and uh it leads up to you know the the this cursed child revelation that Astoria is very much dead um and kind of the after effects of that and, and the revelation that she's still dead as well. Like, he's gone yeah, in time twice, mm-hmm. the whole storyline has changed, and he still has lost his mom. It's so sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, mm-hmm. well, and this, the, 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 uh, the other interesting thing about that with Malfoy, and then maybe that, and uh, with Draco, is that that kind of ties into what we were talking about with how Snape is treated, that yeah. Draco is also kind of given a similar treatment um, in that way. Not quite perhaps to me as heavy-handed as Snape is in this script but no definitely it's more subtle yeah um I think the the reeling reeling off all of the photo information thing it the heightened emotion in the scene makes a lot of sense that that would be what Scorpius is saying in this moment and not as oh I've just read an encyclopedia on our family but <laughs> I am your son and you've let me down in this way because of all of this information it, mm-hmm. it does make sense that he would say it um and it's it is interesting to see a grown up Draco who doesn't have his father's shadow. Um, mm. He's very much living up to the Malfoy name as he is making it, rather than 
as his father has told him he should. Um, and it is interesting that he's still, even in this dark timeline, he still stood up to his father, he still married the girl he wanted to, and he still had Scorpius. Um, even, you know, Astoria died, but I don't think Draco has changed that much between the two timelines. He is in charge of this horrible department in the Ministry, but I think it's jumping through hoops. Like, he, he really doesn't strike me as a particularly different character between the different worlds. Um, which was quite an interesting take on the character and, and the fact that it it kind of reassures us that Draco will always be the kid that put down the wand rather than kill Dumbledore. Um, he's always the kid who will have to put a lot of money towards the muggles to try and cover up the bad doings of the Death Eaters, but he doesn't seem to be the one that's out there doing it himself, um, which is what Scorpius is trying to... Um, recover not recover he's he's trying to reassure himself um he he's questioning his dad and saying please please don't be the character that everyone thinks that you were please don't be the evil person that they seem to think you were be the nice dad that my mum saw that you could be um and i do think that draco is that and and starts to see a future with a, a son that is seeing that rather than a son who is the Scorpion King. Um, so just even, even in the script, you've got that little description of him kind of looking at him and, and, and questioning him. Um, and it's, it's almost like a redeeming thing rather than a, a, a disgust thing, which is quite nice. Yeah. So Rosie, that was beautiful. Ah, thank you. Andrea and Kristen, did you get all of that from the script? <laughs> well, you know, I, I mainly thought about, I think it's interesting that you say that Draco is basically the same. And in a sense, I think he is. But that also highlights how much Draco is influenced by his surroundings. Because Draco in a world with Harry becomes this sort of, you know, he's not the best guy in the world, uh, but he's also not that awful. No, he's just a very protective father, basically. Yeah. Draco in a world without... We don't, we don't even know his job, do we? No, he just has money. He's just there. <laughs> um, he's rich, do whatever he Yeah, he's, he's super rich. He doesn't have to work. Um, but Draco without Harry is this like sleazy, awful person working in a ministry that is run by Voldemort and has not broken free from that in yeah. any way and it's so clear that i mean i i was never a dreary shipper <laughs> but it is interesting how much harry would would affect draco's life and that without harry in a sense draco would become this awful person and in a way he sort of recognizes that this this wasn't as good as it could have been and how interesting again to have to have the idea that maybe somewhere that could have been said. Because that so perfectly parallels Scorpius being without Albus. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like that, that, like, I just, I, it, when you guys are saying these things, I'm just like, why didn't anybody say that in the play? Because, I mean, Draco me- almost says it in the last um, act where he's like, oh, I always envied you, Harry, you and your friends. Um, I mean, they were never friends, and they're not in the real—they're <laughs> they're not in the real timeline either. But 
I think, you know, yeah. you get the, that the closest sort of... thing we get to it. Exactly. Sorry, carry on. You, you mm-hmm. get something that's close to it. And then in this alternate timeline, there's nothing like it at all. So, yeah. And, it, and then it all sucks. I guess maybe that's this. part of the problem for me is that these beats perhaps aren't coming where I would, I would want them to be. Mm. Yeah. And maybe it's, and there's maybe. There's a line that Draco says, which is, um, she made being brave very easy, Aww. your mother. Mm-hmm. And just the the thing that says, but that was another you. And he looks at his dad who looks back with a frown. I've done bad things. You've done worse. What have we become, dad? And then Draco says, we haven't become anything. We simply are as we are. Like that just shows how how little control Draco feels like he's mm. got over his life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Draco and Harry's world has control over his life. He he made those decisions in that final battle and he managed to take control and, and be the person he wants to be. He's still a Malfoy, he's still got all of these rumours and everything going on, but he is trying to forge the life that he wants. Um, and it is really down to outwards influences that are, are forcing Scorpius and all these characters to, to be different. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if if Scorpius never managed to reset the world... And it had to be this Voldemort, Voldemort Day world forever. <laughs> At least this scene gives me hope that he would be able to live with Draco and maybe Draco would leave his place in the ministry because he can now see that, you know, if um, if his mother gave him hope, then now Scorpius can be the one that gives him hope and gives him some some sense of control. Um, I guess... Just, it, just this little redeeming bit. I, I guess it's just still kind of bizarre to me that that and maybe you know it's it what what's what's happening here for me is that hearing you guys speak about these things is kind of making me go yeah that that makes sense but i guess then i go back and read it and i'm just like i'm not feeling any of that like just purely from the page and i don't even know and you know that's something i can't really ever who knows if i'll ever be able to say but i don't i don't even know if sitting in the theater with all of my frequent rereads of Harry Potter, if I would still even necessarily feel that, you know, all of that, that kind of backstory and information washing over me in tandem with the performance and the script, like that's, I guess that's kind of a lofty expectation to kind and I of, I think that's partly what we do here on Alohomora, isn't it? We, we read these lines and we take it so far so beyond far, what it actually yeah. is in the page. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We find all these well, backstories yeah. that are not actually there, but you know, kind of, <laughs> But their potential yeah, and exactly. their richness to a world that, that can exist if we want it to. But it is... I mean, the the fact that it is a play and the fact that this script is so bare emphasises how much of this world is open to interpretation. Mm. Um, and it will be interpreted so many different ways now in the future, this particular storyline in this particular world. That, mm-hmm. you know, this is the moment where canon kind of stops and everything becomes so much more interpretive um and you're allowed to because it is you know within the remit of this script you can choose to have draco be completely evil in this scene if you really wanted to you can make him really nice you could show him as being like having a completely broken backbone and being the the little kind of dog of the ministry that's doing all of the dirty work and and doesn't particularly want to be there it's all open to the actor's interpretation um, and these characters aren't the characters that we're used to anymore. And it's impossible to read them in the same way. Um, so you have to kind of approach it with an open mind and decide what you want 
for these characters. And in that way, it is very much fan fiction because... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just going to say that. That is very aren't the book fan fiction. Yeah, you basically defined fan fiction. <laughs> very, very... So you should take all of that and, like, write that as the heading for MuggleNet fan fiction because that's kind of <laughs> what it is. Um, one, these are the characters of your own creation. <laughs> and and kind of speaking of, you know... The, the background of the world and that anybody can be what you want them to be. This may just perhaps be the most laughable part of the, and where this all crumbles for a lot of people. Uh, the off-screen <laughs> development of this world basically suggests uh-huh. that Cedric Diggory went stupid crazy <laughs> and, became, <laughs> and became a Death Eater. Um, oh my god, the reason for what actually happened in the final battle and why everything changed was such a pin drop moment in the theatre. Uh, oh, the, you mean we'll the, the, with, with Neville? Uh-huh. Yeah, see, like, I... The I get, and English theatre doesn't gasp, but they gasped. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, even with that, I guess, again, like what, like as I was saying, this all does hinge on the idea that by a tad bit of uh, of bizarre humiliation, humiliation. Yeah. in a moment is what destroyed Cedric Diggory's life. Yeah, and that just, it bothers me so much. <laughs> uh-huh. Cedric is made up to be this amazing person in the books. Yes. He's this outstanding guy who, you know, he always does the right thing. He's Hufflepuff squared. And, and, you know, <laughs> somehow he he gets shamed in the Triwizard Tournament and he becomes the most bitter guy in the world and becomes a Death Eater. That doesn't make any sense. And it to no. me, it's like it's a really slight to his memory. Um, yeah. I just remember the eulogy that Dumbledore gives for him um, at the end of the fourth book. And it's so beautiful about, you know, how he was such a nice guy and and, and all these things. And then suddenly he's a Death Eater. What? No, please don't do this. Yeah, no. To the one I, Hufflepuff. Especially when we were promised the year of the Hufflepuff. Yeah. Like, the, the only Hufflepuff hero we've been given, really, other than like two others. And you are going to completely destroy him yeah. for about <laughs> a quarter of this play. <laughs> <laughs> with And with such, yeah. you know, the funny thing was the way that... Uh, Scorpius describes it later to Albus in this act and kind of says, Diggory was a different person. Kind of gave me this. It was, it was funny because my immediate reaction was, did I skip a page? Because <laughs> for some reason, I thought that maybe like that line gave me the sense that Scorpius actually encountered Cedric um, the way that he phrases it. And because he does see, and I, that, and that's, I'm, I'm almost just like, I need Not that. In the script. I need yeah. <laughs> that scene. Like I need him to meet him, and yeah. like that's necessary because. So the interpretive dance I mentioned, uh, Diggory is the leader to it. What? <laughs> um, yeah. So there, <laughs> there is a, um, um, a, a the troop of Death Eaters basically that kind of marches across the stage and does this kind of really powerful synchronized "We are all Death Eaters" dance thing. Um, Diggory is basically the head Death Eater at this point and Scorpius comes across them and kind of does a kind of halting step backwards mm. um, kind of thing. So he, he does encounter How does, how does he Eater. know that it's Diggory? Does he have a name tag? 
<laughs> See, that's what I'm not sure, and that's what I not didn't get until they later said that Diggory was a Death Eater because I didn't get that it was meant to be Cedric oh. the first time I saw it, and it was only kind of the later reveal that oh, that was Cedric. That's bad. But how would how um, so that, that was quite a nice twist? Him? But because it is, you know, they went back in the past and they saw this uh, guy, and they they should know what he looked like. Mm-hmm. But yeah. It's... I mean, with all that said, no. There's there's some <laughs> things I will never believe, and Cedric Diggory becoming the Death Eater, absolutely not. Like that. There was a moment where I was kind of like wondering if they were going to get our pats on just to have him there, but it was <laughs> 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 just felt like a little too much of a stretch. Yeah, my Hufflepuff yeah. heart <laughs> cannot handle that sort of. No. There's, yeah, there's really nothing textually from Cedric's previous appearances to suggest that that could possibly happen. Mm. Um, Other than his arrogance, there is a there is a touch of mm-hmm. arrogance that that could be played upon to make him so like it, it would have to be completely severe and like his whole world falls apart for it to happen. Um, but yeah, it, it, it seems extreme. Um, but. We don't know what happened to him after the different tasks, I guess. Um, I mean, I guess if you yeah, fall from like far Harry enough. stole his girlfriend and all of that kind of yeah, thing. He was, he was yeah, very the... popular in the Triwizard Tournament. you got to say that. Like, he would have been... Yeah. It would have been a very hard fall to, to go from being the most popular Triwizard champion with this great girlfriend and everyone wears badges in your honour and then, you know, nothing. I guess that's yet at the same time. I guess fiddle to the famous Harry Potter. Yeah. Simultaneously, yeah. though, I guess like the fact that by that point Cedric has kind of already settled his beef with Harry. Um, yeah. Plus, he still would have had another task for a chance at redemption anyway, and I'm sure Cedric would have seen it that yeah. way based on his continual drive from the book. Um. So I kind of feel like that slight would not have quite. Gone to the extreme that the play suggests it did. Um, you never know. People uh, <laughs> surprise you. Do you reckon the boys would have helped each other had Cedric messed up the first task? Like the like secrets of the egg and all of that kind of thing. Like because like with the first task and the um, dragon chasing the stone not working and Cedric being in the hospital wing for a while to recover from that. Um, it would have meant that he wouldn't have had the opportunity to tell Harry about the egg. Mm. So how Harry knew about the lake task, we don't know. And like how Diggory managed to prepare for the lake task and that kind of thing. There, there would have been a lot of you know butterfly effect moments that would have changed just from the tiny things that the boys changed going back into the past. Um, so even though it seems like such small changes had such a massive extreme effect, I think that's what the, you know the butterfly effect is trying to say. Mm-hmm. This was the standing on the butterfly, and Diggory becoming the Death Eater was the tsunami on the other side of the world. Yeah, it, it was the the extreme mm-hmm. result. But at the same time, the play happen, sort of yeah. seems to suggest that the butterfly effect doesn't exist because there's not enough change in the timelines. Like there are so many things that should have changed if this like ripple thing was actually a thing, except for when yeah, it was I really mean, necessary. No. If Snape Neville can died. be nice, then Diggory can be a dad. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. There we go. We solved it. <laughs> mm. I'm still going to hold out on that one because it's just too crazy for me. Yeah. But something that's maybe not so crazy is the appearance of Ron and Hermione, who, bless their hearts, as I put it in the last episode, they have nothing to contribute to this play, 
So <laughs> their whole plot line is the reminder that they should be a couple. Yeah. <laughs> and, oh, but I loved it though. But the the thing that I think succeeds, I, I feel like their alternate, as as we're terming them, Granger and Weasley. I think that that's how the play turns them. Yes, no, absolutely. I don't think it's it's not very evident in the script, but they are definitely Granger and Weasley in the yeah. in the production. And I I feel like that version of them succeeds a little more than their previous timeline version. Oh yeah. Um, mm-hmm. in kind of getting the point across because as listeners, if you haven't yet checked out our discussion of uh, the, mm-hmm. the the discussion by you, the listeners on. Uh, episode 201 with your comments there was a quite a lengthy discussion about spin as we've been calling her spinster hermione um and we'll discuss it on the recap as well yeah so we'll get to that but it's i feel like this doesn't quite fall into those pitfalls in fact in many ways it tries to go exactly the opposite of that um by making hermione this kind of like guerrilla military leader (laughs) um who's kind of i think Gone this Ron and Hermione edge. are the closest that we see to the year of camping in the tent yeah. in Deathly Hallows. Mm-hmm. Like, you can easily see this as a continuation of them. Okay, they've lost Harry, but they're carrying on doing exactly the same things that they were in that year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, And that's why it works. <laughs> and it, and it, it almost kind of ends up being a shorthanded version of the original book, um, where yeah. they kind of hold out on each other and then they reveal it at the end. Um and you know, I guess it. And it, you know, I do say that partially humorously. But it, 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 you know, what do you, what do you guys feel? Because I still kind of feel this way about Ron and Hermione that they are more of a their their plot line seems to be in direct response to the whole controversy over what Rowling said about them. Mm-hmm. And do you guys feel that they do hold up their end of the story enough to warrant their storyline being what it is in Cursed Child? And that does it contribute to the larger narrative of Cursed Child? Ooh, that's the big question, hmm. isn't it? Yeah, the larger narrative. <laughs> I enjoy it. Yeah, no. <laughs> like, <laughs> they, I love it. It's it's a great, I think, because I, I really like Ron and Hermione and I love seeing them interact in all these different ways and it's great fun to have them being all these different characters but as far as seeing the whole play you know it's nice I guess (laughs) (laughs) I mean you have everybody else changing a little bit so it's showing their side of the change too because you know everybody wants to know about them um, and to see yeah. how the changes would affect them as well. No, and I think that's part of the problem, is that Ron and Hermione very much are there because they have to be there. Mm. Not necessarily... Because unfortunately, as what happens with poor Ron near the end of this act, is that he's mo- he mostly reveals that he's there to fill in the... Uh, they went that way! ...role. Because <laughs> um, mm-hmm. he does. He's like, oh yeah... Albus was on top of the Allery a few nights ago. I was drunk, so whatever. <laughs> um, and, and you know, I, I I really can't recall a script or a movie, theatrical show, like anything, book, where there have been so many characters that exclusively serve the purpose to say, they went that way. <laughs> um, that happens a lot here. Um, 
And Ron, unfortunately, becomes a victim of that. Partly the problem of setting it when they did. Like, Mm. because they forced themselves to do the 19 years later scene, even though the actual play is not 19 years later, it's actually, like, 21. Yes. Um, Because they set themselves up with a cast of these characters, they had to include all of these characters. Mm. And then they didn't really know what to do with them. Like, the character of Rose is so underutilized in the whole thing. No, yeah. I mean... She is she's such an amazing actress, and um, she actually plays young Hermione. Yeah. Yes, which is yes, brilliant. that is at least that is mentioned in the script. Yeah, good. Um, mm-hmm. Which yeah. which is yeah, that's a brilliant thing for her character, but and for her role. But she Rose should be there, like she should be more of a lead character, and it's disappointing that she's not. Mm. Um, and then it's like we were saying about plots and subplots. These guys they serve the subplots. Um, and the subplots are very much where the Harry Potter world feels like Harry Potter. Exactly. Um, yeah. The the main plot itself doesn't feel like Harry Potter because it's not. It's it's Albus, um, and it's Scorpius. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, this play is definitely Scorpius. Um, he is the main character for the whole of Act Three, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know. Ron and Hermione don't really fit into Scorpius's storyline because he is the friend of their child's cousin he's not actually like directly related to them in any way so for him to be the one that goes oh yeah by the way you guys were married and you had kids and then to kind of go really that's interesting (laughs) Um, it it doesn't kind of work as well as perhaps it would if it were albus in that situation going but you're my aunt and uncle why aren't you together um but they're so famous. That's, <laughs> well, and I, they, that's why he knows it I, so much. I guess, though, that does speak to, you know, another problem I have with this act in particular, with it kind of being Scorpius's act. Because the play already has the problem of being called Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. It, as yeah. Kat said, it probably shouldn't have been called that. Yeah. Because Harry Potter is not the main character. And, yeah. he, mm-hmm. and the... There's a lot of things this this shouldn't have been. It shouldn't have been the eighth story. It shouldn't have been 19 years later. It yes. shouldn't have been Harry Potter and the... Yes. And technically, you know, the cursed child, there's there's three of them, not one. Well, and you know, that's that cursed actually children. speaks to uh, another moment by another character who appears. Um, by the way, we'll wrap up Ron and Hermione by saying, that, you know, for, at the very least, their, their, their demise is quite tragic. I will give it yes. that. It um, was and so effective. It's too. very. They're amazing, and I love it. And I'm so glad it's part of it. Yeah, just we, 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 regardless of how they're used, it, we, we love the subplots. We, yeah, yeah, we do cave to the yeah. fact that yes, if they hadn't been there, we would have died. And you, um, you, you have yeah. to say that in the end, where where Ron and Hermione have the the scene where they're back in the normal timeline, we we get mm-hmm. to see a Ron that has grown out of the teaspoon phase. I mean, he's there's yes. not a teaspoon in sight in that. <laughs> he's scene. a whole soup spoon. Yeah, now. there's so much emotion. Good on he's you. He's a ladle. He's a ladle. <laughs> <laughs> but it was great, Rosie, what you said about that there might be three cursed children because, in a way, McGonagall is actually used way more than ever. I think anybody thought she would be, considering that Rowling said that she was retired by now. Um, yeah. But she's here. And she does have actually quite a bit to say. And what she says, to me in a way, actually is the title of the play. She gets probably the closest to saying it. Um, Nobody actually drops Cursed Child, I don't think. Um, But she gets close by saying, 
on page 201, you are so young, and the stage direction says she looks at Harry, Drago, Ginny, and Hermione. And keep in mind that Albus and Scorpius are also in the room. And she says, to follow that up, you're all so young. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is kind of the twist of The Cursed Child, is that it's not... The the poster and all of the promotional material would definitely drive home the idea that it's Albus. But in a way, I think it's everybody. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of cursed children in Cursed Child. And not all of them are children, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can so easily see it as Harry is the one that is the cursed child mm. still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's an element that Malfoy and Scorpius are cursed yeah, in their own yeah. way, and even in and their of course, little Delphine herself. Yes, absolutely. Yes, and yeah. in their own little way, Ron and Hermione in their little cul-de-sac subplot <laughs> are cursed. <laughs> so everybody kind and of Rose has... and Hugo. I mean, Hugo is the real cursed. Oh, child. Yeah. He doesn't yeah. exist. He got cursed yeah. right off the page. Yeah, <laughs> I do love that McGonagall's like kind of final note on the matter is just like, your children didn't exist! Like, <laughs> and then Mike's like, oh yeah! <laughs> that is kind of the ultimate oh my god, right? Yeah. yeah um, terrible parents! You lost your children! <laughs> Don't do that! <laughs> so, and it does, and it is interesting to me just that McGonagall is kind of the one, again, being that her the original, the previous canon was that she was retired by this time. But the idea that she's actually still here and she's actually imparting kind of the big lesson of the, that the characters need to learn to connect mm-hmm. things. Um, she's the one who kind of sets them all on the right track. And while Albus and Scorpius still proceed to do the wrong thing, I think they do it <laughs> with much more, like, a much more better sense of intent. Yeah. Um, if Snape has become McGonagall, McGonagall has become the kind of lecturing side of Dumbledore. She's not yes. in control and she's not like um, all aware like Dumbledore was, um, but she is just as good at doing these kind of little messages and and kind of looking down at them as if they're going, oh, so young. <laughs> yeah. And interestingly, to follow that up, Harry comes up to Albus's room and nothing is learned whatsoever. But the catharsis will come later, but... They do have a moment where they're at least getting through things a little better. And interestingly, fun little kind of sideline tidbit is that Harry says, I've locked away the map. You won't see it again. Um, And he's talking about the Marauders map, which is interesting because that concern came from one of the alternate universes, not from this one. Um, So it's kind of I guess Albus must have summarized what happened with the map when he was telling them everything that happened. Um, I just thought that was interesting, though, that Harry, this universe Harry, was like, just to reassure you that I'm not that universe Harry, I put the Mm -hmm. map away. Um, Also, interestingly, I guess that's kind of a setup for, because the canon is that James eventually takes the map from Harry. So I guess that's set up for those of us in the know, a little bit of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and if we say that Ron has, you know grown out of his emotional range of a teaspoon here we get a throwback to old screaming harry from order of the <laughs> phoenix where he's like i don't choose adventure and you're like yes we know 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, and that's something we talked about a little more extensively the last few acts because Harry's featured in them more. He's definitely this is probably his where he plays the least part of all the yeah. of yeah. all the parts. Um, um, because it is like you said, Rosie, this act is mainly Scorpius's story. Um, mm-hmm. but I and, and that's still some you know a problem I have with the and that's a person. I think that's a so this part is so much a personal decision of how you read Harry. Because this this is something that everybody, I think, is having different feelings about. Because I, personally, can't read Harry the way that the play wants me to see him because 19 years later, Harry in Deathly Hallows is a completely different Harry to me mm. than what they're yeah. trying to propose here. Um, I get it. Totally think it's possible. Just not my Harry. Like, Cur- Cursed Child in itself is, is a different universe, AU, to me. Um mm-hmm. Because the 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 Harry that I personally read in nineteen years later is a very affectionate Harry who has overcome so many of his emotional challenges. Yeah, that he will he would not be in this same place where he's. This is not an all was well Harry. No, no, no. Yeah, a, a Harry who still can't express his emotions mm. and empathize rather than sympathize with his children. Um. That's confusing to me, especially as many of our listeners have pointed out. Harry went through exactly the same things, uh, some many of the same things Albus went through at school. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. that Harry could cross, uh, the Harry I read can cross the line of sympathy into empathy. This Harry can only hit sympathy, which is why Albus doesn't like him. Yeah. And um, go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, it was just, I think... All was well makes it <laughs> so well, you know. It's hard to <laughs> it, it's hard to imagine any world where Harry has problems after that. Of course, it would be completely unrealistic to have a character where everything is well. That was a good way to end mm-hmm. a story, but mm-hmm. when you want to continue it, not so much. And I and that's why I have the big issue with why I wanted it to start 22 years later rather than 19 years later. Yeah. Like, if if that had been our present presentation, we've gone suddenly from all was well to all was not well. All was ridiculously bad. That we needed to solve. <laughs> and that, that, would be co- that would cause intrigue and that would cause us to go, but everything was fine. Why, why is it not fine now? <laughs> we want to be with our characters and we want to help. Um, but because they show this ridiculous decline that doesn't make any sense it just doesn't really work like there is no reason for harry and albus to drift apart in this way there's no reason for albus to turn against harry and there's no reason for harry to stop being able to understand his son it like it it doesn't make any sense well, not, at least not the to the extent where it happens i i can fully yeah. understand you know i don't have any kids but i can understand that being a parent is a lot harder than maybe you expect and I can understand yes. that maybe Harry can't relate to his kids in the way that he wanted to, because... But he would still have, you yes, know, something. 11 years worth of backstory and relationship yeah, with exactly. that son that was seemingly loving. But kids can be so difficult, and especially, like, the age that Albus is, that yeah. you find they are drifting apart. Mm. Um, you know, it's not necessarily Harry, it's his kid is going through so much right now that it, you know it's hard to for him to relate. Um, so he is giving more of that sympathy to empathy because um, he's not being able to relate to him right now. In a, in a way, and sorry. I mean, it's more like typical 
families like you see that all the time where you have perfect bond with two kids and then this yeah. one kid is going through so much stuff and you just can't but I, I feel like that excuse is a cop-out like I, I really do feel like yes I, I definitely agree with all of that and it does exist mm -hmm. in real families and everything but the way they show it doesn't feel realistic to me like the the way that they show this decline in the relationship and the way that they show Harry not understanding him and the way that they show Albus not understanding Harry and all that kind of thing yeah and I think in a way if, yeah. if it was written better it, it would be more believable yes and I think if, if Joe had written it a bit more it would have been because because mm -hmm. Harry is so not understanding I mean yeah I know parents he, does, just, he just doesn't get it exactly I mean I know parents who they're the nicest people in the world and they can't connect to their kids for whatever reason but they still understand their kids better and they try harder than I feel like Harry is doing in this play mm. where he's just shown to be this completely worthless person <laughs> when it comes to <laughs> communicating at all. So if they had just like tuned it down a yes. smidge, it would have been more made, you know, believable. Made kind of more hilariously ridiculous with Ginny kind of being next to him being like, I'm a good parent. Why aren't you a good parent? <laughs> and then like <laughs> not giving him any help. So it's, it's kind of, yeah, no, but what you're saying, what you guys are saying actually bleeds really well into this last bizarre dream we get in Godric's Hollow um, mm -hmm. at the graveyard. And of course, I think from the moment you you see it, everybody kind of in the fandom turns to each other and goes, this didn't happen. It can't have happened. Yeah. <laughs> and and Harry acknowledges that when he wakes up. Um, mm. Fascinatingly, the dream does kind of try to be a little apologist to Aunt Petunia. Um, but it's a dream, so we can give it that room. <laughs> um, it's It definitely tries to do the same thing that the, the deleted scene from part one tries to, tried to do. Um, but... Uh, what's interesting here is that Albus ends up coming out of Voldemort's robes. And this is where I, this is perhaps the only reason that the play threw me for a loop a little bit is because this and other dream imagery suggested to me, and I in a way think this might have been a better route to go. Still not very unexpected, but somehow I think better. I thought Albus might have a piece of a Horcrux in him. Or something of the like. Maybe not even necessarily Horcrux, because I don't know how that would work with James and Lily. Yeah, that makes... Yeah, we'd be weird. But... But I feel like there the play, in a lot of ways, was trying to directly connect Albus to Voldemort. And, yeah. and, and Rosie, you wouldn't have had the benefit of this part of the script... In the in the earlier acts, when 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 Scorpio or when when Albus is kind of on his downward spiral, mm -hmm. the physical description of him almost beat for beat matches Voldemort. Um, really, he's wow. he's okay. suggested to be very sallow, hollow eyed, um, like he's gone like he's aged dramatically in a very short span of time. Um, wow. And so there's this idea, there's there's weird hints in the writing that there's a connection between, a, a more direct connection between Albus and Voldemort. And it kind of harkened to me back to ideas from Order of the Phoenix, which while I, well, Order of the Phoenix is my least favorite book, I think it has some of the most fascinating 
metaphors for being a teenager. Yeah. And I feel like that could have really connected in well with what they were trying to do here. Um, I can understand that. So you're saying that all of kind of Harry's worries of am I good or am I evil is, are kind of now turning into, okay, so I've, I've decided that Sirius said I, I can be good and there's there's good and bad in all of us. There. We're not split into good people and death eaters. But what if my son is the evil one instead? So what if it's not me now? What if it's Albus? Yeah. That's kind of what this dream seems to be showing. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And that's why I was... And that would explain some of this tension a bit more, that he's he's so worried that he's created a potential mm-hmm. Voldemort rather than... Yeah. Yeah, and I guess I that's where so. I thought... Well, you know, and even with the sorting into Slytherin, <laughs> I guess yeah. that's where I thought this was going. The play... And I think that's what we're lacking. We're lacking some of Harry's thoughts. We're lacking... Yeah that insecurity mm-hmm. that clear depiction of why it is that harry can't that that he is so worried about albus if we could under, if we could have that mention of him being worried that but hang on a second albus is in slytherin does that mean he's going to be evil because that's what he seems to see the world as like that would've been just a little bit more helpful in understanding harry's motivation throughout this play which for sure in its own self is already par- problematic because Rowling has stated that the reputation of Slytherin has drastically diluted over yeah. the years. <laughs> Plus, Harry has a completely new outlook on what Slytherin is because of his life experiences. But I guess then it's internal bias. Like, yes. It's what he grew up... When he joined the Wizarding World, it was what he always grew up thinking. And yeah. Which, you He's know... to go against that, but it doesn't seem to work. Gets into the issues of reverting characters to who they were versus growing them from mm. the implied places to where they yeah. were go- growing. Um, yeah. That's And how you take that and reread the original series. Um, but, you know, that was just kind of... It, w- it was funny to me because the dreams just... The way that the dream... That the plays decide to interpret the dreams, to me, is a little more far-fetched than what I thought they were giving me. Like... And maybe it's different for because I, I thought it was funny that the the whole dream where, you know, Harry has that weird thing with being with Aunt Petunia and then suddenly he's in the forest. He was in the closet. Now he's in the forest and Albus is there. He's like, ah, he's in the forest. And I'm like, what? That's what you got from that? There's so much more going on in that <laughs> <Yeah>. dream. <laughs> like, uh, like, and, and then for this one, because the dreams really are they're, they're, they The dreams to me hold up to the original Harry Potter dreams. Like, oh, yeah. They're they're super surreal and interpretive and they cover a lot of ideas. And it's just so funny to me that even the dreams are still functioning as he went that way. (laughs) 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 After all of that kind of beautiful imagery, that's kind of all it is. Um, I guess it's quite difficult when you've got such a complex world to actually say, give them reasons to go to these places, if not. He went that way. <laughs> <laughs> so, and speaking of the way they went, who should be taking them there? We kind of come full circle in our discussion. We we we, we end with oh dear old Delphi. Mm. Um, she shows up and she now the interesting thing about the Delphi in terms of what we were talking about earlier with her relation to Harry and Voldemort is that. The play at the very last moment with the last dream has Voldemort say, do you still see with my eyes, Harry Potter? That's I love the fact that the script actually goes, Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, you can very much hear that. That was a stage direction that really bled through. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think we've so distinctly gotten that, you know, the the reason I think that bleeds through for us who maybe haven't seen it in a way too is that's from the movies. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, that's... And that's from early movies as well. That's that's mm-hmm. like right from almost the first film. Yep. And it lingers. Mm. Yep, yep, yep. So, but it's interesting because that's kind of the play's attempt to be like, see, there's a reason that Harry and Delphi are connected. But it doesn't really go further than that because if you think about it long enough, there shouldn't be a reason. <laughs> um, because, of course, the other issue is that Harry can speak parcel tongue. Um, that's wrong. Yeah. It's yeah. The idea that, like, I guess the idea that the play is trying to say is that Delphi, be by being Voldemort's child, still has the connection with Harry. But if she's not a Horcrux, that doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. Because Harry didn't have a connection with Voldemort himself. Just like it was never a gene thing. It was specifically a Horcrux thing. And if if Delphi, so it suggests that there is some life in that horcrux if it is reawakened somehow which is just not good well and yeah it i get you know the excuse we can give it of course is that we are working with extremely dark magic here so potentially there's some stuff we're that has been unseen up to this point harry of course is such a unique case so i guess that's kind of how you can explain it off but at the same time with the rules that we have established this shouldn't work this way yeah Again, this is um, one of those. Which in this way may just mean that you know Harry's dreams are Harry's dreams. These t- this time, it it may be that you know his scar hasn't hurt since he was a kid and all of these kind of things. But it could be that, like Ginny's trying to say, his brain is sensing danger. It's it's danger for his son, and his brain knows that the way Harry manages to translate warnings of danger is through what he did when he was a teenager, and it kind of pseudo horcruxes him well and so, like there's no actual horcrux it's just pretending <laughs> that it's there so that it can do all of these things for him well and steve vanderark mentioned kind of reminded us that harry does have prophetic like dreams before voldemort comes back to his body that is yes. true um so harry does have dreams like that but at the same time his dreams were never quite that informative i guess <laughs> plus there is definitely I think the play is trying to actively stress that there is a connection between Harry and Delphi that can't exist Mm -hmm. um, by the rules that we know. Again, where where the play is not really for people who have picked apart the series to the extent. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It doesn't make sense to us. Delphi not being able to exist. Yeah, you know, for everyone else, I think it's like, oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. that makes sense. And for us to have like, specific rules, I for saw our the movies. Work. Yeah, like, no, because A, B, C, D, and everyone's like, where did you get all these bullet points from? <laughs> and we can go, hello, Hamora. <laughs> well, and like you said, Rosie, that's kind of why I think the what where in the biggest problem lies is being marketed as nineteen years later the eighth story. Because yeah, if you did take not. this purely as an ex- just a fanficy like extension without that expectation, that would work. Like, that would totally work. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, Delphi... The other problem I have with Delphi is that she, to me... And I mentioned this briefly before, but she's she kind of pulls the same thing that Quirrell does. Where she... Mm. And even more so, because she's... We, we've talked about how her character is almost dependent on our previous knowledge of Tonks. 
She's very Tonks-like in her initial appearances. And to follow that up... She... I think that's an act, though. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. It, and it is. Uh, yeah. But that's just what I'm saying, is that just yeah. like Quirrell, she's an act. And at the yeah. very end, she's like, ah, surprise, no, I'm crazy evil. Yeah. Yes. Who would expect the clumsy, adorable Delphi? Um, is basically what she was saying. And she is very I, much I a can... manic pixie dream girl. She is yes. the Alaska Young. She is the character that, you know, she is exactly designed for Albus to just blindly follow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't trust her for a moment from the first time she turned up. Um, <laughs> no, I think, I think she's one of the few Harry Potter villains who is very easy to sniff out. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's also because we... We know every single other character in the play. Yeah. Other than like mm-hmm. a handful of new Hogwarts students who we can accept as being new Hogwarts students. She is so stand out as she is supposed to be an important character mm. and yet you never once heard of her ever before. Like yeah. it just it doesn't work and it's not as subtle as we're used to from Joe. Um so it, it really just kind of goes, Well, that's not right. This is gonna go this is gonna end badly. Um, but I didn't know, like, how badly it was going yeah, to yeah. go. It, yeah, you've just that's, got kind of a slight suspicion sure. of... It could have mm-hmm. just been, she's going to be a bad love interest for Albus, but nope, yeah. she is ultimate big bad this time, apparently. <laughs> you know how in in, um, in in cartoons sometimes, when everything is sort of hand-drawn and nice, and then there's this one thing yeah. that's sort of in a different animation style, because someone's going to pick it yeah. up? She sort of feels like that object where it's like, that doesn't fit. That is definitely going to be mm-hmm. used in this scene. She's the thing with the blue lighting in the video game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She, well, yes. yeah, she definitely does when you read her. She does feel like, I don't, maybe even more so than on stage, she feels very out of place. Um, yeah. Because she's like, she's so much more obvious in the script where she's just like, why don't you do this thing? How about you try this? And she's... Rather than be the let's go that way, she's like, let's do this, um, is kind of her role. And yeah. it's and her suggestions kind of come out of nowhere. And yeah, like like I said, she goes in tandem with what I was saying earlier about the idea that the play could have been more about wh- wh- what you said, Rosie, Harry being fearful that Albus is, is the monster. Yeah. Mm. With that in mind, you kind of wouldn't need Delphi. Like... Yeah, the story would write itself. And it that's, mm-hmm. that's more... A psychological drama. Which is yeah. more what I was actually yeah. kind of thinking it was going to be. Um, Me too. Based on the mm-hmm. uh, marketing that we got for Cursed Child is that yeah. this... While there would be the whiz-bang magic, there would be more of a character drama than yeah. Cursed Child yeah. ended up being, I guess. Um, that's the way I thought it was going to go as well yeah. but I do still think there is enough emotion in this second part that does drive it Like I, I really enjoyed part 2 a lot more than part 1 mm. um, I've heard considering, that considering you know, Delphi is the big, the big bad in part 2 that you know she must be she is worth it in having that character and to kind of make it not another not just another story about Harry and Voldemort you know that would feel like okay here we go again um, there is some element of kind of a, a new fresh blood to it, but well, but in know, a... I'm not sure where I'm not sure where the story would have ended had it just been about Harry and Albus. Mm. Well, and well, and mm-hmm. see, that's that's kind of why I'm just like, 
Rowling and potentially a team of other writers could have come up with an idea for where that would have yeah. ended. I guess it's not. It's not. Hermione and Ron would have had a better involvement. <laughs> yes, I. It's not. It's like I kind of feel like these ideas that we're just kind of, kind of mulling around. It's not our responsibility to make that ending. It was theirs. Um, yeah. Because mm-hmm. maybe and maybe that's because the ending we, we get didn't really wow me. But we'll get to that in the next episode. Um, mm-hmm. But. Uh, Delphi proceeds to, as they're on, at the top of the Allery, she proceeds to pretty much do the villain monologue where she's like, ha ha, <laughs> here I am. This is who I am. Except the, I'm not going to give you the last bit of information, but here's everything else. Um, <laughs> and you know, Rosie, you noted this here about the bit with the tattoo that I think is yes. actually w- what's most problematic about this reveal. So go ahead with that. I mean, the the speech does mention it as well, but the fact that the stage direction literally says she has an augury tattoo is such a spoiler. Like, yes, kind of, she comes into this scene and her costume is a bit different. We can see that she's got tattoos, um, but it's not particularly clear what they are. Um, and um, we can see that she's she's not kind of as clean cut as she was earlier on so she she's slightly more disheveled she's she looks slightly less of a good character mm. um and then albus notices these tattoos and they start talking about the symbol um but if they had just described it as like a bird then it at least creates some kind of idea of suspense and oh that's an interesting tattoo and they're kind of getting to know each other a bit more and the fact that she immediately go- that the like stage direction goes aha here's the augury <laughs> it's, just, it's just it spoils it it's just rubbish and it could be described in such a more interesting way just as as a teacher who teaches scripts and things as well and like trying to get the kids to understand the subtleties of stage directions never write a stage direction like this one please kids <laughs> it's rubbish to be fair um, i gotta say i was reading so fast by this point that you missed yeah. it yeah <laughs> you know i was just going whatever there's a bird on her back i don't care and then when Scorpius <laughs> kind of made the connections, I was like, oh, yeah, I should have noticed that. I'm an idiot. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the, you know, the thing about the augury bit stuff is that it's it's not... It, it does somewhat feel feel Rolling-esque in that it is sprinkled through the axe. Like, yeah. especially with the one that's probably the most fun is the very first act when Hermione's like, oh, some giants with bird tattoos. Mm. Um, yeah. which kind of is the hint. Um, so it's, and, and really there, that, that added element of it being revealed to be on her back visually is something we don't get as readers. Um, you know, that added piece. So I, mm. I, I definitely see, yeah, how the, the script is just like, ka-clunk, ka-clunk, ka-clunk. <laughs> <laughs> on on that but it would part. be so easy just to describe it rather than just set it as a thing and that's why i'm really hoping that the the second edition script isn't a rehearsal script that it is a proper stage These, yeah with nice mm-hmm. description proper yeah, yeah 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 well and then the kind of other little tidbit she drops is that she was actually adopted by the rowels um, it's not confirmed if Euphemia was married to Thorfinn, but it's kind of implied. Um, mm-hmm. So apparently she was taken in by a Death Eater fan. It, you know, yet another kind of moment of like, wow, the Rowls, they were super not important to anything. <laughs> <laughs> so just a little dash of Harry Potter 
fun in there, I guess. Um, and then she. I mean, you could have used the Caros, couldn't you? Yes. You could have said Caro, and then people would have gone, yeah. oh, I know who that person mm-hmm. is. And then it would have been fine, but no. Nope, well, and how interesting that would have been. Death Eater number four. Yeah. No, well, <laughs> and how much more interesting that would have been with how much more involved the Caros were in Harry and Voldemort's life yeah. and kind yeah. of what their takedown was. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, she takes them to the third task because we had to hit every task. Um, interestingly, the maze and the imagery of the maze, and Rosie, I don't know if it plays out that way on stage, but the imagery of the maze, the way the script has it, is from the movie. And the idea that the maze is carnivorous. Um, well, that's, that's kind of from the book as well. Does the, the with the the hedges move in the in the maze in the book? I'm fairly sure. Harry, I think at one point wonders if the hedges are moving. He doesn't actually okay. see it. Um, but the maze in the book is almost purely tasks within the maze. I'm now realizing how many years ago it was that we read God. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and to be fair, the play does con- clarify that with Cedric coming up against them. Yeah, and he thinks they're a task. Um. But at the same time, so they kind cute. of blended the movie's maze and the book's maze. Um, yeah, I think um, the staging of a maze on a stage is so difficult <laughs> um, that I was quite impressed by how they did it. I, it, I mean, it was more symbolically a maze than anything else, but I could, I could clearly understand what they were trying to do with it, and um, I think it worked. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I forgot to mention before they get to the maze, Craig Bowker Jr. dies. Oh well. <laughs> Um, (laughs) (laughs) sucks to be Craig that that was such an an important moment Um, was it? I forgot (laughs) (laughs) it it really feels like another Cedric he is is the second spare like it it really does feel like poor Craig and like I I am so much more emotionally attached to his actor now because I know that he died like yeah, it's just, Aww. he's a character that kind of pops up once or twice and then suddenly he's dead and you go, no, no, Craig, I liked him. <laughs> yeah, I well, yeah, he, he, sad. go ahead. Yeah, go I do ahead. feel that he, he is, I like, I mean, I don't like that he dies, That would, that's awful, but it is, it is <laughs> nice to get that parallel of the first character that dies in, in Harry Potter where we go, what, what, no, 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 no. That's not supposed mm-hmm. to happen. This is a children's story. People don't die in children's stories. Mm-hmm. This isn't nice. Um, and no, yeah, he's he's good. a very short. It's good to establish that you know this is for real. This is serious. She's she's going through with this kind of stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's the only thing that makes yeah, her a true villain is that she actually does kill someone. kill somebody. Otherwise, mm-hmm. she is the kind of disappointing. Okay, we can take you down quite easily. Go away, manic pixie dream girl kind of girl. Which is funny because she has taken down very easily in this yeah. section <laughs> by Cedric. Granted, she's not expecting it, but he takes her down with Expelliarmus and um, Brachiobindo, which is so funny that Brachiobindo is really built up to be like the spell that for some reason nobody can get out of, except you can get out of it because Draco does it. Because <laughs> um, there's a very easy counter curse, apparently. Um, and in that moment, Cedric... <laughs> has his little <laughs> apologist part of the series where he gets his kind of like, oh, yes, your dad loved you, by the way. It was so sweet. <laughs> it was. I was sat there with a smile all over my face, but it was really sad as well because I knew he was about to die. <laughs> yeah. 
true. Yeah. And I have to say that in that babyish voice. Oh, yes. But it was just no, it's required. <laughs> it's definitely required. I guess, you know, this, it just keeps pushing the why this feels fanficy to me is that it's like every character who you'd want to get that moment gets that moment, I guess. Yeah. Like mm. over and over and over again. It's like, and then it's just like at the, because it, it, it is, and it's, and in a way it's kind of very, going again full circle it is very a very potter musical in that yeah. way where but you know if it if it was true fanfic then we would have had serious back and we would have, so <laughs> it's because they didn't yet, have time true. for a part three <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure he's in a draft somewhere um probably but uh yeah they of course that's that that's the bit with the maze and then they get left in ostensibly they they get left in lily and james's time and somehow will make their way all the way over to godric's hollow but that's for the next act um but the very last bit of course is that um harry and the gang discover that of course (laughs) poor amos who is left behind by this script completely (laughs) um has um been had did not have any siblings and therefore could not have a niece um, so they, they do find a way to get into Delphi's room, her very, uh, her very basic little room with a shocking reveal. And you know, it's funny, Rosie, how you put here your feelings <laughs> about this reveal, because this is one of the few moments of the stage description. The other one would probably be the time turner, like you were saying, Kristen. Yeah. Where mm-hmm. this, I saw this really clearly, and I felt exactly really? what I should be feeling for that moment. Good. Like, that, I don't know if it was because it was how it was written, but I could see it. I mm-hmm. I could definitely see it. Yeah, me I'm too. I'm so relieved, because just from from not knowing anything about it, actually seeing it happen was just astounding. Like, I... I was for like half an hour after that moment I wasn't able to think about anything other than that moment like it it was so incredible sitting in the stalls as well so I had like a roof over my head and quite close to the wall um I if you if you can't picture it and you are ever going to see the play I don't want to describe it too much because it will spoil it um but this like before I went into the play um for act two my sister said to me Um, because she had managed to see it at the beginning of the summer. Um, I'm really looking forward to hearing what you think about the moment. Mm. (laughs) You'll know it when you see it. (laughs) And boy, did I know it when I saw it. (laughs) (laughs) Because just, you know, after all of these magic effects and all of these different um, illusions and things that they've managed, for it then to be (laughs) basically in surround sound, but not sound in vision, like the magic happened above my head and to my side and no like, yeah it's it it so simple it was it was it's uv lighting but it was amazing i think that's what the thrill of you know that's why i felt it more than any of the yeah. other stuff because i know what it's like to be in a theater and the magic of what's happening on stage comes out into the audience like mm-hmm. there's there's kind of an indescribable thrill when the that you know box that you're looking at in front of you stretches out it's kind of the reason why everybody loves 3d movies so much yeah because they want Mm -hmm. that but theater can actually give it to you yeah um 
Yeah. And there and it really is indescribable, but there is just that thrill when you become a part of the story or the play and it feels like you can touch it. Um yeah. and in I have literally no idea what happened on stage at this moment. Because <laughs> you were too busy looking because... around you, yeah. <laughs> I was. Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely <laughs> effects like that in various um theater shows. And again, as I said on the last episode, listeners, even if you can't see Cursed Child, I hope you get to experience some really great theater in your life. Um, yeah. because mm-hmm. the one thing that I'll give this play is that at the very least it is exposing a generation of Harry Potter lovers who maybe don't know theater very well to, to theater and yeah. kind of the, the magic of theater, so to speak. Um, but also don't think that theater has to be these amazing over the top, massive budget projects. No. Like mm-hmm. if you ever go and see much ado about nothing with a, three-man cast Mm, mm -hmm. in a tiny little touring box that goes around to an open-air theatre, whatever. (laughs) Like, three people doing Much Ado About Nothing where the main cast is a cast of six is amazing. Like, theatre can be whatever you make of it. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's it's so important to see small productions as well as big productions because it is a completely different experience and so worthwhile. Theatre is amazing. I kind of (laughs) like the idea that, like, the the Harry Potter books got a generation of reluctant readers into reading the idea that maybe Cursed Child... Hopefully this will bring yes, them to the theatre. Oh, that would be so nice. Who, yeah, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the that's idea so that there's a idea. maybe... Certain people do have stigmas around theatre and their thoughts, their impressions, mm-hmm. their stereotypes about theatre. And it would be really great to kind of... The idea that Harry Potter could work that way too. And, you know, hopefully with Rowling's insistence that this will tour... Please. Hopefully that will be possible. <laughs> please, mm-hmm. yes, please. And I think it will. Oh. Like just from from thinking back to what my audience was like, um, there were a lot of people my age who had obviously grown up with the books. There were a few kids. There were a few older people, and there were like it was an extremely diverse audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say, you know, there were probably a lot of people in there that wouldn't have normally gone to see a play, but would because it was Harry Potter. Yeah. So I'm, I'm yeah, I'm really hopeful that. You know, with it transferring to America probably eventually and, and touring around the world and all those different things, it's it's bound to bring mm-hmm. a lot of people to see what this eighth story, whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this um, thing. <laughs> yeah. well, and but it's so worth it. If you can, please do. We'll wrap up this discussion by actually just having a brief chat about... Because we now that we've totally geeked out and nerded out over the effect of the prophecy, the prophecy itself is when spares are spared, when time is turned, when unseen children murder their fathers, then will the Dark Lord return. Notwithstanding, I don't know how you ladies feel about this, but I don't think that prophecy is exactly the prettiest prophecy we've ever heard from Harry Potter. No. Um, eh, it's a little clunky for me. Um, especially because it doesn't quite follow a rhythm, um, and the rhyme scheme's a little <laughs> yeah. off. Um, and it's a short one. It's pretty short. Um, well, if you're going to write it all over the theater, you can't do something like Yeah, <laughs> exactly, for sure. But what's fascinating to me about this prophecy is probably the part that the play doesn't spend as much time on, um, which is when unseen children murder their fathers. Mm-hmm. The script gives no, at least the the written script gives no regard to that line. Um, there's no mention of it again. It It's, of course, quoted. But Harry and Draco don't seem terribly concerned at the idea that their children might 
kill them. And <laughs> 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 is also seemingly another part of the play that I thought was building up to something that didn't happen. Um, it, it had already happened by this point, I think is the key idea. Albus had already killed Harry and they'd fixed it. I guess I, I guess what was interesting to me was that it's that the the current Harry and Malfoy don't really feel that it's still potentially a risk, I guess. The other question of course is that this prophecy where on earth did it come from? Yeah. <laughs> like that's and and Rosie you brought up a great kind of supposition of when did it come from? Um mm-hmm. how does this affect the knowledge perhaps of Voldemort, Bellatrix, other characters in the series. Um, it's all role and no play make Delphi something something. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great summation of Delphi, actually, I think. Yeah. Um, and a nice nifty Simpsons rec- reference there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we kind of end on this dramatic revelation that, yes, Delphi is the child of Voldemort, and her prophecy da, da, da. means something, something. The end. <laughs> cut, cut to black. A cut to black. Um, <laughs> but it's such a good moment to have the interval as well. Like, you know, I literally, that last bit of the scene, like, the fact that the words were on the ceiling and all around me, I was like, whoa. And then I had half an hour to go, whoa. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, ready for the next bit now. <laughs> I guess for me personally, it's the... And, and a few of our listeners have spoken to this issue that just be, like a lot of people are kind of, kind of rushing to the fence, the, the defense of you have to see it and well, it's a different medium. So it requires different things mm-hmm. for me though. And I've heard some of our listeners say this, that like you were saying, Rosie about cop outs, there is a little bit of cop out to me to say that, I guess, because theater doesn't have to be, flimsy stories it's totally no you know it, it and i think and maybe we have been spoiled by harry potter in many ways i know <laughs> i have mm-hmm. but i still feel like this could have been better like this could have been a better story yeah it is um, it is a cop-out to say that it's supposed to be viewed because we do read scripts i mean rosie like you said you you teach um writing and also i i'm guessing you teach your kids um, some some reading of drama, and yeah, I'm. I mean, we do Shakespeare every year. Exactly, we do various plays throughout the school. We're ju- career, in my so, lit yeah. course, we're just about to start reading drama, so it's not like it's impossible yeah. to read a script um, and enjoy it if it's well written. Yeah, in its current state, I would never teach Cursed Child. It is just not a good script. Um, in terms of its literary merit. And I think that's a good um, reminder, Rosie, that you've been saying, you know, the thing I think the fandom is quickly forgetting is that this is a rehearsal mm-hmm. script. Rehearsal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and that'll be, uh, time will tell once we uh, get to the real And it was real. It just draft. so rushed out as well. Mm. Like, for this script to have been published when it was, like, it had to have been finalized and gotten to the publishing things before even the previews opened, yeah. like this is not the play as it currently is. This is a, this is a draft, an early, early draft of the play. Um, so I, I really do hope that people out there reading the script and feeling slightly disappointed by it are 
hedging their bets a bit and and are being aware that you know yes it's a script and yes it was there for you to read um and it it should stand up for itself and and not have to be seen and you should be able to kind of imagine what was going on and the storyline in it is is not um what we would expect from a harry potter story but it's not a harry potter story it is a script and it is a bare bones script um and you know we have done four years or five years of analysis of how rich this world is and because we have done that we have got all of this knowledge that we can bring to the play um please see this script as a skeleton and the the flesh that you put on it and the world that you put around it is one of your own making and one of our own imagining The, the cursed child lives within our brains um so so flesh it out make it your own and do go and see it if you get the chance because their interpretation of this script is phenomenal. And not only that, but we have been not a, not only have we been spoiled by the writing of Rowling, but we've been spoiled by the fact that we are living in an age where an author like Rowling is so accessible. Yeah. Um, we can ask her a question and ostensibly if she sees it, she will answer you. Um, <laughs> and the fact that Rowling is still around to grow her world and has very done a lot of taken a lot of steps to ensure that she is the one who calls the shots, I guess in a way makes the result of cursed child a little more baffling to a lot of us. Um, because it's just, it's a little unlike some of the things that she said was going to happen or what that she was going to do with the world. Um, yeah. And when, in a way, why I think a lot more of the fandom is sitting and waiting more excitedly for Fantastic Beasts. <laughs> um, I think there's a lot more of her in that, perhaps, than Cursed Child. Um, but, you know, like you said, Rosie, I think that's an excellent point that for those of us who can see it, hopefully we do, and definitely everybody else will just lie and wait for that proper script. Uh, when it's released, I guess next year is the target. So mm-hmm. we would also like to thank Andrea for coming and being a part of our show today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Yeah, Andrea. you were an awesome guest, Andrea. Thank you so much. It was, I enjoyed it incredibly. I I can so see why you've done this for four years. <laughs> well you you contributed some great points and i really love too that your your last audition to us was you basically talking you you kind of performed your own hashtag keep the secrets in your audition because you you basically spent the whole time going i don't want to spoil for you what i want to talk about yeah (laughs) because i was so so unsure about like who had read what and and what can I say? And at the same time, make it sound interesting. Oh, no. <laughs> but we definitely love the, 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 one of the things we love most about Alohomora is that we do get to have guests, um, not just from kind of the UK and the US, but from all over the world um, who get to share their thoughts and opinions and different, different uh, background with Harry Potter. So, Andrea, thank you so much for bringing that to today's episode. And of course, guys, the next topic will be Cursed Child Part 2, Act 4, not Act 2. Um, <laughs> so the second half of Part 2, um, the augury is taking over. And what will happen? Who knows? Well, we, anyone who's read the script, <laughs> kind of does, but not enough. It's so good. 
<laughs> or is it? <laughs> we'll, we shall discuss next week. We can discuss that. <laughs> we'll next week. And we want you to be here to discuss that with us, listeners. If you would like to be on the show uh, for Cursed Child or any future episodes, uh, we want that. We want to make that happen for you. We have a topic submit page on our main site, alohomora.mugglenet.com. We need you to go make some suggestions for that because... We will be finished with Cursed Child very soon. Yet again, how fast we go, we seem to go through these Harry Potter novels. Um, <laughs> but we will be finished very soon with Cursed Child, and we want your ideas of what to discuss next, because as you may have forgotten with all this Cursed Child business, we do have a new format on Alohomora where we will be exploring topics, um, doing more topic-based episodes, and we want your input for that. And again, we want you to join us for that. If you have a set of headphones with a built-in mic or a built-in mic onto your uh, computer, laptop, as well as a standalone microphone and a recording program, you're all set. We really don't require any fancy equipment, and we will help walk you through the process if you are selected to be on the show. So we've got you covered. And don't forget to check us out on our many social media sites. We're on Twitter at AlohomoraMN, Facebook.com slash OpenTheDumbledore. Don't forget to check out our website at alohamora.mugglenet.com. And over there you can send us an owl on Audioboom. And just if you're going to send one, please just keep it under 60 seconds. And we've just got one more reminder to check out our Patreon page. Um, it is on patreon.com forward slash alohamora. You can sponsor us for as low as $1 a month. And everything that you give goes straight back into helping make this show amazing. And we can't thank you enough. Thanks again to uh, Kat Tatara for sponsoring this particular yes. episode, too. We appreciate it. And if, Thank you, Kat. If you haven't heard your name yet on the Patreon lists, because we've got a lot of you who helped us out, and you will be <laughs> here. Thank you. So you, we, will, <laughs> we will be hearing your name uh, you, on future episodes, so just keep listening. And all that remains for us to say is that I am Rosie Morris. I'm Michael Harley. And I'm Kristen Keyes. Thank you for listening to episode 202 of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore.